Alhamdulillah, it's a great honor to have Mufti Abdurrahman Mangira Sahib here with us today. And it's a very important topic for all of us to understand, especially those who are engaged in the, in the field of uh, teaching, ulama, alimat, and also students studying. It's very important that we have a good grasp of these topics. Uh, some of these things we already know. It's not like we're, uh, we need to be educated about the proofs for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But how we articulate things, how we approach things, uh, and if we come across a situation where we find somebody who uh, denies the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who has certain questions, how we approach the issue and how we answer such questions, uh, that's very important. So inshallah, uh, through this workshop today, uh, we'll be able to understand the proofs uh, with respect to a lot of these questions better. And more importantly, how we're supposed to uh, address these issues and how we can best give answers to those people uh, who have become prone to, to, to such doubts and objections. I'll now hand over to Mufti Abdurrahman Mangira Sahib. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahilladhi sharaha sudur al-mu'mineen wa faddalahum ala al-khalqi tarran wa nawwara basair al-muttaqeen بمشاهدة حكم شرعه وبديع صنعه منة منه وفضلا وألزمهم كلمة التقوى وكانوا أحق بها وأهلها وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له الذي هدى بما أنزل على رسوله أقواما وزاد بعضهم به طغيانا وكفرا فكانوا أضيق الناس صدرا وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله أرفع الخلق ذكرا وأشرحهم صدرا صلى الله وسلم وبارك عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم القيامة الكبرى أما بعد So my dear respected علماء and عالمات brothers, sisters, friends whatever else whatever other designation you'd like to be known by, alhamdulillah. We have to keep this a bit light, lively because this is extremely intellectually draining discussion, uh, both for you, both for myself, um, because to be able to, it's not a bayan, it's not just an inspiration, it's not just that you open your heart and just listen and expect to be inspired or driven to do something. This is a bit more than that. This is to understand the arguments. And this is to try to follow the arguments so that they make sense. Uh, once we've seen any argument and the premises for that uh, put together, and then when you get the result from it, it opens up another facet in our minds. And that's what we call uh, a form of addition to our knowledge, enlightenment of some sort, uh, an additional piece of knowledge that we're adding to our repository. So that's what we want to do. Now I know this, when there's so much done together, it can be quite uh, draining. But we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for tawfiq, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for facilitation. What we're going to try to do today, this is, uh, we, we ran this course initially, the full controversial questions course we called it, which even the name is a bit controversial, 
some people said it's not controversial, it's the, what did they say, the difficult questions. And I thought, no, we want to keep it controversial questions. Um, we ran this course. So we ran this course initially um, in London, in Whitethread, at Whitethread Institute. So we had, uh, it was for two weeks, three, uh, three days a week, and that's four hours each day. So four, eight, twelve, uh, and was, was it three hours or four hours? Three, six, nine, no, it's three hours. Three hours a day. So that's three, six, nine hours a week times two. So that was for 18 hours. And we had about 170 people sign up for that from that because it was online as well. That just showed the need for such a thing. So what we'd done is we'd actually identified about 30, uh, about 40 questions, 40 to 50 questions that we said, this is, these are the questions we're going to answer. The questions ranged from questions related to God, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, theology in particular. Then there were some social questions like the age of Aisha, radiallahu anha. And there were a few other questions. But by the end of it, we just about managed to complete these 40 or so questions, 40 to 50 questions. And we literally got a... As the days continued, we actually received the whole flood of additional questions. But by the end of the two weeks, we had to stop because you just cannot carry on. I mean, it's not an endless. So that tells us that there's a lot of questions. Especially towards the end, the women questions started coming in. Even though we dealt with several, like the crooked rib one, naqisatul aqli wa deen, we dealt with that one. Uh, we dealt with several others, but then there's just more that came in. So inshallah, there's going to be a sequel to that. There's going to be another full whack, uh, inshallah, controversial questions course. Uh, in maybe, maybe before Ramadan, maybe after Ramadan. But inshallah, you'll probably get note of it. Uh, if you've registered for this one, you'll probably get note for that one. And then you can sign up for that one. So essentially, the idea was that the, Leicester, uh, uh, the, the, the brothers in Leicester, they said, we, we need something like this. Because clearly, this is a challenge for most of us. Especially those who are teaching in maktabs and in other places, because these questions have just become uh, more, more and more prevalent as the days go by in terms of why is it like this and why is it like that. So we decided to do one just for five hours, four and a half hours, five hours. This one is going to be a bit shorter than the Leicester one because Leicester one was done about uh, a month ago, and that was we had one extra hour there, and we still finished about half ten, although the official time was half nine. So this one we're actually starting later. So Birmingham is supposed to have more barakah than other places maybe. Right? It's definitely centrally located. So maybe we ask Allah for tawfiq and facilitation. Anyway, the point is not to go through too many questions. Right? The purpose of these seminars, these, uh, these seminars that we're doing in different cities, the purpose of them is, and this is what you need to focus on, is how to look at these questions. How to analyze these questions and then how to start answering these questions there's a technique in answering these questions and the more we try it inshallah the better we'll become and that's what we're going to try to so, inshallah if at the end of this we will be answering questions as well and we'll have an open question and answer session for those that have uh, basically interested you or challenged you or uh, your students or whoever it is that you're, you've been dealing with Inshallah, we'll have that as well. 
But at the end of it, what we're trying to achieve, inshallah, today is just how to listen to a question, how to respond to it. That's, that's really what we're going to do. And we will try to do that towards the end as well. Okay? Um, so inshallah, uh, and until our first break time, we're going to try to go through a quick introduction and the purpose of this. And this part is the boring part. So I'm going to tell you that right now as well, that it's boring so that, you know, you know that it's boring. Okay? Because it's important for you to know that. If you don't think it's boring at the end, then please let me know that it's not boring. Right? But this is what I would consider the boring part of it. Right. So, part one, the what is the best answer? How do you define the best answer? If I asked you, what is the best answer for 1 plus 1, 10 plus 10, 10 times 10? There's only one best answer. There is only one answer. Right? Unless you ask a philosopher, then they might try to give you some very flowery language and try to go through different ideas. But generally, otherwise, it's a very exact science. And you say 10 times 10 is so much. 2 times 2 is, is, is this much. There's no two ways about it. But where it's more about what do you, what's your belief about this? Uh, why is this like this? What is the wisdom behind this? Then that's a very difficult question. Because that's not a very straightforward answer. And the whole point of this is not to just give an answer and walk away. It's not about saying, I think I know an answer. This is my answer, take it or leave it. As we would call ilzamul hujja type of idea, that you just mutor jawab as such, that they can't, they can't respond straight away, but then they, they're not convinced at all. That's why this is a lot more delicate. So, you know, you may have... Let's take the issue of... Uh, let, let's take the issue of uh, why women get half the inheritance of men in certain cases. Not in all cases, in certain cases. So, which is generally brought to the fore. So you would have probably well researched, you know, researched that area very well, looked at all the various different uh, possibilities and said oh, it's only in these cases and so on and so forth. But if somebody doesn't want to accept that, then what are you going to do about it? You can't keep telling him, this is the best answer. I've researched it. This is well researched. Because you have to remember, sometimes you're going to be dealing with arch skeptics. Skepticism is a philosophy on its own, if you want to call it so. Just being skeptical of everything. Some people do it for a joke. They just keep going on about it. They believe, but they're just going on about it, just to mess you around. You know, among friends you do that, as well, but why did you do that? No, no, I don't get it. Why did you do that? That's, that's play skepticism. But some people are seriously skeptical. There's some art skeptics. Does anybody know what they're called in Sharhul Aqaid? Your favorite book. Yeah. What are they called? The Sufistaiya. La Adriya, how about that? La Adriya, just keep it simple, right? Instead of the sophists, let's keep it the La Adriyas. I don't know us. But maybe not, but what about this? But what about that? So, that, that's where the difficulty is. This is a matter of convincing someone. For example, if somebody says to you that where, uh, prove it that you are from your parents. What evidence will you provide? Hmm? So you're going to go to DNA first. How about a birth certificate? That might be easier, right? 
So generally say, okay, here's my birth certificate. But I mean, birth certificate, I could probably, I could probably make up a birth certificate for you. You know, because t typography, design, a graphic designer could probably make it up. And if you go to India or Pakistan, they'll probably do a very good job. Right? So the thing is that that's not a proof. They say DNA then, right? Maybe next level, DNA. But DNA is not always 100% accurate as well. It's about 99 point something percent. In fact, recently there's a friend of mine whose wife works at uh, heads a fertility clinic. And they came across a very strange case where a couple came in to have a t treatment. And there's very rigorous processes in place in terms of maintaining the, 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 the samples and everything and so that there's no cross-contamination. They went away, they had the treatment, they went away, they had a child. And then the husband is saying, that's not my child. So, and the DNA was very strange. The results of the DNA were very strange. They were not conclusive. So then they had to literally backtrack to all of those that they treated in between to see if there was any cross-contamination. They had to get an expert, one of the top experts, I think is sitting in the USA somewhere, uh, to, to get involved. And they discovered that this was an abnormality here. This was an abnormal case. So once you've got that, once as soon as you've got a, an element of doubt, then there's skepticism. Right? So nothing is 100%. So there are so many things like that, that we have to understand that sometimes you may be dealing with a skeptic and you'll be wasting your time. So the whole point is that it's a matter of convincing somebody. And at the end of the day, Allah is the one who holds the key to the heart. But we still have to try. See, when we were, uh, I talked about the controversial questions course, which is just the two-week course that we ran. We have another course, which is part of the Islamic theology course, which has two sections. One is the classical aqi that we teach in there, uh, Ashadi and Maturidi text. But on the other hand, we've got Dr. Imran, Dr. Safaruk, uh, Ustaz Imran, Dr. Safaruk, who teach the, the Western uh, intellectual sciences aspect of it. That's eight months. That's like a whole year course, the Islamic theology course. So when we were going through the various different ex uh, evidences for the existence of God, the teleological argument and the cosmological argument, the moral argument and so on and so forth, I thought it may be a good idea if we were to scientifically uh, set up a study where we take 30 atheists, right? somebody does a PhD on this, take 30 atheists and then present to them these various different arguments and their various iterations, which one would be most effective? Right? Because if you can find out what is most effective, let's just use that then instead of going on to the other ones. But by the end of it, I think what dawned very clearly is that it's, it, it's, it, that's very difficult. Because it's أَفَمَنْ شَرَحَ اللَّهُ صَدْرَهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ فَهُوَ عَلَى نُورٍ مِّنْ رَبِّهِ that's really what matters. It's those whose hearts Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has expanded, whose chest Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has expanded for Islam. If, it's, if that's written for them, it will happen. So does this become just a fatalistic issue? That an aspect of fatalism that, okay, it's up to Allah, it's predestined. If it's not, it's gonna if it is, it's going to happen. If it's not, it's not going to happen. Why bother trying? But our responsibility is still that we must try because that's our responsibility to give da'wah. In fact, we, the Prophet ﷺ gave da'wah. Yet, he was told himself, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ So that in itself tells us that our responsibility is, in fact, this is not da'wah, this is not, this is defense. We're losing people. 
People are getting confused from our own people. This is extremely important. So we definitely have to try, but at the end of the day, Allah holds the key to the heart. So that means we try, but we also pray, which is very important because this is not just an asbab issue. We take the means, but we also ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to assist <coughs> and, and help. Otherwise, for, do, for those who, whose hearts Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept hard, then they're, they're, they're going to be clearly in deviation. So the purpose, I'm, I'm just rushing this part because I want to get into the questions. I want to rush this part through. And of course, you can, have, you can ask questions if anything, was, uh, if anything needs clarity. The purpose of this course then is to allow us to think about these questions, formulate our own understanding and have clarity about them. Um, the reason is that if Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi was alive today, this is what he would be studying. Because this is in no doubt the need for the time right now. This is what he would be studying. Tomorrow in my area in Clapton in London, we have an open house at the, at the masjid. And in all the previous ones, I've been part of it. This time I've decided to stay away because this was more important. And mashallah, they're more than capable of looking after it there. Right? So I, they were asking like, aren't you going to be for the open day? I said, subhanallah, open day, I'm, talking, uh, I'm going somewhere else for another project, right? Which is, I think, even more important than an open day, though that's important as well. So inshallah, we ask Allah to give us tawfiq through this. And um, that's really the purpose of this course. But remember also, we must not feel that we have to become these super Muslims, that, we, mu that we, we must be able to convince everybody. To be honest, the Prophet ﷺ was not even given that role, that he must convince everybody. That you must put all the fires out. But that doesn't mean we mustn't try either. I want to understand that there's a balance here that we must, uh, we must understand. We do our best and we leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is basically the verse which tells us that obviously, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتِ this wasn't designed for non-ulama because I thought ulama would have understood these verses so I didn't put a translation there. How many of you don't understand Arabic? Just so that I know how much. Hands up high please. Wow, that's half or more. How many of you do understand Arabic? It's a minority today. Okay, the job has just suddenly become a bit more difficult. Right? Inshallah, not too bad. So, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ You... Uh, cannot guide whom you will but Allah guides whomever he wills and he is the one who he is the one with uh, who's most aware uh, of those who are guided so as i said that you know while we're discussing you've got you should have paper or uh, some way to take notes any other questions that pop into your mind, then please write them down for yourself. If they're not covered and they're very important, then inshallah you can, we, can deal, we can try to deal with those at the end, inshallah, in the question and answer session. But um, I think the main thing is that we're trying to, those 40, 50 questions and then the additional questions that came in, we're actually trying to formulate a small booklet you could say so that anybody from a teenager and above can start looking at this 
Last time in Leicester, we had some 10 or 11-year-olds, I think, uh, sitting around. And I think it's inappropriate for, those, uh, for such young people to be here, to be honest. A lot of people, they take their children to these gatherings. And I think sometimes it can be harmful. Uh, this afternoon, I was talking to a group of sisters, and they had children I didn't know. They were on another floor, and I started talking about, I was talking about women, uh, girls, teenagers, the challenges in front of them. And one of the biggest challenges is that it's, it's a lot to do with sexuality. And then obviously some of the children had to, some of the parents had to move out. So this is not for young, young children here, right? Because these questions that come up, it's not worth bringing that up to them because I don't think that level of maturity is there. So th that's just to let you know if there is some, I don't see any, but that's just to let you know. Some questions, they require a very short answer and some require you to have some chai with the person. And, and th that's not a joke. There's some, you'll see when we ask some of these questions, if you're asked these questions and you try to quickly give an answer, that would be the wrong thing to do. There are so many assumptions behind why somebody asks a question. Where it's coming from in themselves. What's the ideology that's driving this question? There's no point in trying to answer the question. Because you have to correct, try to correct the ideology, otherwise they will never get it. It's almost like if you've got a, a tinted glasses on, there's no way you can show them clarity. So you have to start changing the glasses, the way they look at things, the perspective. So that's very important. That's like one of the biggest lessons here. So, why are we doing this? It's basically for this reason, right? Because there must be something that drives us. Of course, we all have this, mashallah, this uh, concern for our faith. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised, وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ قَوْلًا مِمَّنْ دَعَى إِلَى اللَّهِ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا وَقَالَ إِنَّنِي مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Who better in speech than the one who invites to Allah and does good deeds and then can say with pride basically that I am from the Muslims. They don't have to say, my name is Mo now, right? And uh, these things don't matter to me. No, they can stay, still say with pride. I think this is very relevant. And وَلَا تَسْتَوِي الْحَسَنَةُ وَلَا Right, good and bad, they can't be equal. إِدْفَعْ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ But again, this is important. You must defend, you must repel in the way which is most excellent. فَإِذَا الَّذِي بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُ عَدَاوَةٌ كَأَنَّهُ وَلِيٌّ حَمِيمٌ and even evil relationships, relationships filled with acrimony can become filled with affection and love and understanding and compromise. So, just two important points about gaining conviction and yaqeen because that's the crux of this for a lot of us. Why do people have doubts? Muslims, why do they have doubts? It's because the yaqeen element is not there, which is conviction. So, this is a hadith. There's two hadiths I'm going to mention that I came across. One is, Babu ma man waswasa in Musad Ahmad. The Prophet said that when shaitan approaches one of you and says, Who created you? And you're going to say Allah. Then he's going to say, Okay, who created Allah? Meaning, you're going to go into this whole causal chain of who created you, your father, your, his father, and so on and so forth, until you get to Allah. Then, obviously, the next logical question for them would be, Well, who created Allah then? Allah, uh, the Prophet is telling us an antidote to this. The cure for this is not to intellectually engage this. Because if you try to intellectually engage this, 
it's more complicated. That's why فَإِذَا وَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَقْرَى When one of you has this experience, then just read آمَنْتُ بِاللَّهِ وَرُسُلِهِ I believe in Allah and His Messenger. You must just take a leap of faith. I believe in Allah and His Messenger. خلاص, that's it. Isn't the story about Mawla Khalid Rahmatullahi He was sitting intellectually having a debate with the shaitan. You know, in, it didn't have to be shaitan, shaitan, but it's clearly shaitan because in your mind you're having this, but what about this then? And you respond, but what about this then? And you respond. And then eventually, he started getting stuck. Hazrat Mawlana Rashid Ahmad Gangoy, Sheikh, was doing wudu and suddenly he had an unveiling. When you have a close connection with somebody, you can have these experiences. Um, you don't even have to be a Sufi to have these experiences, to be honest, but this is clearly a Sufi experience. And he had a miswak and he just hit it down and he said, just tell him I believe in Allah without any evidence. Because that intellectual thing was getting confusing and complicated. And if I've got the names wrong, then may Allah forgive me and be corrected, but that's what I remember. Now you can't tell this to everybody because this is the anti the Prophet is saying, but if they don't believe properly, you say, just say Amantu Billah, then it'll be all gone. You can't do that to everybody. But if we're getting a doubt, then inshallah this should work. For anybody with Iman, this is gonna work. The next one is a bit long, I'll just explain it. And this is very amazing. I remember when we were doing the Dars of Muslim, this hadith came up and it just struck us. Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu is uh, relating that when Lillahi ma fi samawati wa ma fi al-ard, when that was revealed, وَإِن تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبْكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ Whether you reveal and whether you, uh, whether you keep inside, whether you conceal, or whether you make explicit what's in your heart, you will be reckoned for it. Now for us, it's like, okay, we're going to do our best, it's alright. But for the Sahaba, they wanted 100%. So they said, this is something we're not going to be able to get 100% on, this is difficult. So, it says, فَاشْتَدَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَىٰ أَصْحَابِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ This had a very severe impact. It was very, it was a great burden on, on their minds. So they came to the Prophet ﷺ, they literally were sitting on their knees and they said, اَيْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ كُلِّفْنَا مِنَ الْعَمَالِ مَا نُطِيكَ We can understand that we're being accountable. We're made accountable and responsible for that which we have the ability. That's understandable. But, like jihad, salat, sadaqah. But then this verse has suddenly been revealed and wala nutikuha. We can't, we can't. Those thoughts that plague our minds, that happens to most people. How can we be accountable for that? That's something, we, it's beyond us. So the Prophet ﷺ, now look at the way he dealt with this. This is what I found amazing. He said to them, do you want it that you say the same thing that the people of the two books before you said, which was Samirna wa Asaina? Okay, we've heard it, but we disagree with this. We disobey this. Okay, I know that's part of Islam, but I, that's not rational. That doesn't make sense. No rational person would agree to that. I've heard a lot of Muslims say that. Not a lot, but I've heard people say that. Do you want, is that how you want to respond? Say, we have heard, we have obeyed. And then seek forgiveness. And to you, we're going to finally return. Look, 
we're going to do our best. So then, this is the Sahaba, right? They said, Sami'na wa ata'na ghufranaka rabbana wa ilayk al-masih. They said that immediately. فَلَمَّا اقْتَرَأَهَ الْقَوْمِ When they read this, when they uttered this, when they articulated this, their tongues also succumbed to this, submitted to this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then immediately revealed the rest of the verses which are considered to be some of the greatest verses in the Quran. And in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very clear that they are asking that oh Allah do not place on us a burden greater than we can bear. And then Allah says, لا نكلف الله نفسا لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها Anyway, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not place a burden, does not place a burden more than uh, they, uh, uh, on anybody more than they can bear. So amazing how they were challenged with this. They were concerned. The Prophet told them how to respond. And amazing, mashallah, Allah made it easy for them. And also they, it was a test of their submission. Now, <clears throat> anytime something confuses us, this must be the way. I don't understand it. I'm trying to figure it out. And many muhaddithin have done this. Very few of the good muhaddithin would, if they didn't understand something, that they would try to just brush it under the carpet. It was actually seen as a form of intellectual pursuit to try to figure it out. And there's many examples of this. Um, let's take a simple example, right? The Prophet ﷺ said that when the adhan is called, then the shaitan retreats. It's like one of the two times when shaitan is retreating. One is that time, the other time in Arafah, and then I think during the battle of, uh, was it battle of Badr, right? But anyway, when the, whenever the adhan is called, the shaitan retreats. And then he says, what, what does he say after that? What does shaitan do? You can say it, you can say it in Arabic if you want. It doesn't sound so bad in Arabic. What does he say? Huh? Yeah, well, what do you say now? Walahu durat, right? Walahu durat, and he breaks wind. Now, somebody looking at for the first time, like, what does that mean? Why would somebody say that? Shaitan breaking wind? What kind of a statement is this? There's people who raise this kind of question that that seems like an absurd statement. Why would you say he breaks wind? Couldn't you say something else about him? So, how do you respond to that? I mean, you, you don't sit with shaitan every day to see that he does that. So how would you respond to that? So what's very interesting is that people who... We don't deal with horses, right? And animals like that. People who deal with horses, they know very well that nearly every time that you strike the horse to make it gallop, it actually lets off wind. It breaks air, or it breaks wind as they call it. Like maybe a few times. So for the people the Prophet was speaking to, this was so natural. They were, okay, we understand that, right? Like he bolts. Basically, whenever you get a horse to bolt, that's what they do. But for us who don't understand this, because we're riding cars, who don't, well, even they make a few sounds sometimes. You know, like, you know, even they make a few sounds sometimes, right? So, in fact, they tell you with diesel cars that sometimes you need to take them on the highway and like really rev them to get rid of all of the dust. That's for a different reason anyway. So what I'm trying to say is that the the, the muhaddithin never like sh threw it under the carpet. Give you another example. Uh, Imam Alusi, that's 150 years ago in Baghdad, right? 
he discusses the issue of وَالشَّمْسِ وَالْقَمَرِ بِحُسْبَانِ He discusses the issue of the hadith where the Prophet wasallam said uh, in, in, it's in Sahih Muslim as well, it's in Bukhari as well I think that every day when its sun sets, the sun goes and prostrates as soon as it sets, it goes and prostrates in front of the, by the throne of Allah seeking permission to rise again now that sounds fine if you know, you don't have an international idea of how the world works and the fact that the sun is always sun is always up somewhere it never fully goes down it may go down for us but then it's up somewhere else for somebody else so now Imam Alusi is saying I've looked far and wide and then he says look this is an agreement of the hukama which basically means the, the philosophers of his time the astronomers the ulama as well now that the sun definitely does not set everywhere at once Right, so that's clear from an observational perspective, it doesn't set everywhere. It sets in one place, it's risen in another place. So what does this hadith mean? Right. This is where the complications arise. When people ask us these questions, we don't know how to respond to them. He said, I have looked far and wide, and he says that I've hardly found the answer that Shafal Ghalil wa what is it? Shafal Alil wa Arwal Ghalil. Right, somebody who can quench your thirst and satisfy you and cure, you know, the, the, the sick person basically is just the Arabic idiom to say a satisfactory answer. But he, you can tell he's looked into this very deeply. So then this is what he says. And he says this 150 years ago when it was much more difficult to understand this. Today it's very close to home. He says that, he, he talks about two things. Number one, he says that he answers it from the perspective of smart objects which is a modern term, but he doesn't call it smart objects, obviously, right? And number two, he talks about the separation of a soul and body. So number one, he says that there are objects which are not animals, they're not animate objects, but they seem to have a consciousness. And that's a question that philosophers have been dealing with uh, from a while, that do objects have consciousness? Does that wall, does that rock, does that tree have consciousness? And they're actually coming to terms with the idea of consciousness. In fact, we're trying to create artificial consciousness through artificial intelligence, AI, today. And essentially, we know in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِمِّنْ شَيْءٍ إِلَّا يُسَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِ Right? There's nothing except that it, no object, there's nothing in existence that, except that it, glorifies its Lord. وَلَكِنْ لَا تَفْقَهُونَ تَسْبِيحَهُمْ But you just don't comprehend that. You won't comprehend their method of tasbih. Because every object's method of tasbih is unique to itself. Just because we do tasbih by subhanallah, right? That doesn't mean everything else has to do the same thing. And you know, we need to allow our minds to understand that. So everything has its own method of tasbih and glorification. That's number one. We give it consciousness, number two. Um, number three, the separation of soul and body. Humans have had experiences like that. In fact, if you look from, a theologi uh, from, a, from our, uh, uh, our um, religious perspective, the Prophet ﷺ met Musa ﷺ during his ascension. He met him in the Kathib al-Ahmar by his grave in the Sinai. He met him in Masjid al-Aqsa. And then on that same journey, he's up on the sixth heaven. So how is he, whereas Anbiya are supposed to be fi quburihim, in their graves, how is he also manifested in all of these areas? That's another dimension anyway, where it's a possibility that you have a single object and it's being 
manifested in different places. Today, that's easy for us. Giving a talk here, this could be broadcasted in many different places. Th these things have become like minal mumkinat from the realm of possibilities just so easily today than it was before. For example, the hadith. Well, let's just finish this example first. So, what finally Imam Anu says, long discussion, but finally this is what he says. He says that my conclusion then, after understanding that objects have consciousness unique to themselves, the soul can become separated from something, and today we understand that, that the powerhouse was something, control the, the hard drive or something. For example, now what you could have, for those who understand networking, you could have literally the, the motherboard and the, the hard drive and everything in one location, and you can just have terminals, and all you need is a monitor and a keyboard and a small box. So that basically is fed from there. So everything is going on from you, but they're satellite uh, uh, terminals basically. So the, these things aren't difficult for us to understand anymore. For anybody to deny these things today, it's just really crazy because Allah has really opened it up for us in our real world today for these things. He's essentially saying the sun carries on, the body, the jirm, jirm shams carries on, right? Setting and rising and setting and rising according to each area. But its nafs, its soul, its ruh is the one which is prostrating in front of Allah. When that's given permission, okay, it can now allow its body to rise in this area. So essentially, it's like a, the soul is the representative of the body by the throne of Allah. And for me, I, I'm completely convinced by that as a possibility. It's not difficult for us to understand that today with what is and has been shown to us. Right? But I'll give you another example. When Umar anhu is on the mimbar, uh, giving his khutbah and then obviously this is a case where everybody is listening to him and this is something witnessed by everybody so in the middle of his khutbah he says Ya Sariya al-Jabal oh Sariya the mountain and Sariya is miles away uh, on an expedition right and he was essentially going to be attacked through surprise and Umar radiallahu anhu communicates at a time when there's no concept of a mobile phone, right? There's just no concept. Sounds were limited by distances and barriers in those days. No longer are they like that. So that sounded, that is a miracle, sounded extraordinary, fantastic almost. Right? It is, I mean, for that time. But today, is that difficult anymore? Okay, today most of us will still have to hold a, at least an earpiece. But we know the way technology is moving forward that it's very possible tomorrow that there's an implant. Or even, you don't even need an implant. It'll be probably something just like a small skin that will just be put it on you. Like something so fine, a dot, a speck. Wallahu alam. That you can easily communicate like that. These things have become now much easier. You see, we're, we've actually moved into questions. We've actually gone into it now, right? It, it, it doesn't matter, to be honest. The boring part has ended, maybe, right? So, la hawla wa la illa billah. It's just that was one of the feedback that the first part can get a bit boring. So I told you, let me just tell you it's boring so that you'll be prepared for it. Anyway, the mi'raj. This is sometimes used, uh, the mi'raj, the ascension, is sometimes used to make you make Muslims look stupid, right? For example, Mahdi Hassan, 
like one of the best interlocutors that we have. Unfortunately, he's a Shia or whatever, but he's, he's a very articulate speaker. So it was on a BBC program or something, and he was actually asked that, oh, so you also believe that your prophet went on this winged creature up to the heavens? Now imagine being asked that in a, a formal kind of setting like that. What are you going to say? How are you going to convince us that you, I mean, you know even before you say it that people are just going to think you're stupid anyway. Right? They've already made a judgment about you. How do you even respond to that? But there's a response today. And it's easier today when Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu, when he was told by Abu Jahl, not even by the Prophet from what I remember, it was Abu Jahl who confronted him first and said, do you know your friend is saying so and so? He says, I believe it. He believed it without having any models in front of him, any idea, any parallels, any examples. Today we have numerous examples. Now remember, to prove that, you'd have to bring hadith and Quran, which is the theological proof. They don't believe in that proof, so you can't use that. Because the epistemology is different. You can't use that. Okay? We would have to prove it intellectually, rationally. So we can't prove every detail rationally. But one thing we can prove is that this is not an impossibility. It is a possibility. And that's all you need to prove. All we need to show today is that that's a possibility. Do you understand what I'm saying? All we need to show that you prove that it's an impossibility. I'm going to prove to you that it's a possibility. The details, the characteristics, that's a separate matter. Right? We can't argue about characters and details. As long as I can prove to you that this is something that is possible, then you can't deny it. And today it's possible, isn't it? At least it's seen to be possible because we've been to the moon. Right? Except the minority who don't believe so. There is a minority of, there is a group of people who don't believe they went to the moon. That, that's all made up. Right? Skeptics, you have them. Right? We've been to uh, Mars and there are missions that are planned for other places and it's maybe a matter of time. Wallahu alam. But hasn't that opened up the realm of possibility? And they've actually done some other things to show how other things can be transferred into, into space and at, uh, to, uh, to far distances. Now, can you see how mumkin, you're allowing somebody... See, initially the person just thinks, Muslims believe that. Sounds absurd. How can somebody go up there without a spacesuit on a horse? Something like a horse. Now, when you start telling them that it's other things have been up there and they can go there. Okay, they have to go in a limited sense right now. They have to go with a spacesuit. They have to go special craft and so on and so forth. But isn't it possible that a, a, a space retardant material is sprayed on somebody? A coating? You don't need that big hefty suit. That, that become that's a discovery of the future soon. And somebody can go above there like that. And they figure out how to uh, deal with the, the pressures of outer space. Isn't that a possibility? So once you establish something as a possibility, then at least you've given them a room to think about it in a way that they can't deny it absolutely. And sometimes that's the answer. Otherwise, for you to try to say exactly the Prophet went this way and he did this, that is very that may be more difficult to explain. But to dis, to uh, explain the concept that it's a possible concept, they can't deny it. Then at least it doesn't sound absurd anymore. But obviously, on a BBC panel like that, you probably won't have the time to explain that because that's all about sound bites, right? The the thing is that there's a in the media there's a certain way of responding. You can't give 
you can't give Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad type answers there. It's not the time, that's not the place, you know, like well argued, muqaddimat and, you know, premises and that. It's, you need sound bites. And whoever's good at sound bites, that's the person who's going to be good at media. Right? If you want to be philosophical and explain things in detail, you, you need to have a very prolonged interview. That's why you, you have to know uh, if you can get onto and what kind of answers you're able to give. And you have to basically, uh, you have to cultivate that kind of a response system. So anyway, let's move on. Insha'Allah, this little effort of ours in calling to our lords, basically defending our orthodoxy, during these times of extreme, uh, increasing ignorance and confusion regarding the divine, uh, may Allah accept this offering. And we ask Allah for tawfiq. Our object, objective is for us to first gain more clarity, remove the clouds of doubt or unawareness, and equip ourselves uh, to better assist others, inshallah. Because if we think we're da'is of any, at any level, whether ulama, huffad, uh, university, teachers, whoever you are, Right? We, we have to be equipped because this is, uh, we get so excited when somebody becomes Muslim. But, uh, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of people. We're losing a lot of people. And that's more sad. And people think it's more sad as well. They know that, you know, that person, they will try much harder to bring somebody back into the faith. than they will to try to get somebody into the faith. And because we just feel that we've lost somebody of ours. So let's uh, move into... We've already started, but tackling controversial questions, which is the next part. Can I open a window? It's getting a bit hot. Firstly, when, when you start uh, dealing with questions, we need to be convinced of the correct answer ourselves the best possible way of answering that. We need to be convinced about that. Otherwise, we can end up actually doing more harm than good. It depends now. If, if we're set up like a debate, and you know, there's been debates, especially recently, you know, there's been debates throughout history, and there's been debates recently as well. What you have to understand is in a debate, it's not really about who's more truthful. It's generally about who's more articulate, and who can silence the other person. Not to say debates are not necessary. In many cases, they are. They're necessary. But you have to be very careful who you debate with, who your interlocutor is, because to see whether it's worth doing so or not. But that's a different thing. What I'm trying to say is that if you are going to get into this field, and we need to be, so we need to be convinced of the right answers. At least the best possible answers. I didn't finish that study I was trying to craft, that scientific study about which is the most correct answer. As I said, towards the end, we discovered that this study would not, be, would not work. I don't think you could have science. This is not a scientific study. The reason is that one atheist may be convinced if Allah has written for him by one argument, or by no argument, or maybe all the arguments. In fact, one person who I know of, he became Muslim just through observing fruits. How do you become Muslim through observing fruits? Because they're amazing. You know, now that I think now that you can focus on that, just think of various different fruits. Just the design of each fruit. Why is it so sophisticated and so befitting each fruit? Depending on the flesh of the fruit, 
whether it has seeds or not, the skin, the thickness of the skin, the texture of the skin. Just take an orange. It's orange on the outside. Then it's white. It's quite thick. Then it has a, a white coating, uh, another layer, another layer inside. Then each of the orange segments, they're encased in whatever you would call that, right? And these segments come together. Within the segments are small globules, if, the, if that's what you can call them, right? Uh, of, of flesh. Why so are an orange, we just like, they're everywhere. They're like apples and oranges are everywhere. It's not mangoes where you only get them in season. Why such a sophisticated idea? A design. Have you had durian? Some people have had durian. Then I shouldn't talk about it because you won't appreciate it. But take the jackfruit, for example. Take the. Um, have you have you taste, have you seen dragon fruit? Right, amazing, vivid colors. Right, some are white inside, some are red inside. It's just amazing how each one, and then the seeds, the way the the seeds are placed. Everything is amazing. The way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created them. Such ikhtilafu al-sinatikum wa alwanikum. That's just in human, human beings. But in everything else, there's such a variety that who can design such... Of course, we're, we're invoking the design argument here. So it's up to Allah. It's afaman sharahallahu sadrahu lil-islam. We're not dealing with science here. We're going to try our best. So now we need to be convinced. Number two... When you do answer a question, you have to be able to answer it with your back up straight and not stooped. Now, what does that mean? That means I like, I think it may be that, but you know, I don't get it myself, right? I heard it's like this, but you know, I know it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Right? It's you're not helping if you don't understand something. Say what the these evangelicals say all the time. You know, when they come to your house and you ask them a tough, I'll tell you next week. What else are you going to do? You can't just make up something because people are going to see that, right? So, use that as an opportunity to find out. That's why personally I find England boring compared to America. In America, when I was there for eight years, every day was a new challenge. Somebody would come up with something crazy. And that forces you to go and find out and research. Whereas in England, mashallah, it's just about justifying the same old things, right? Uh, not saying that we need to go crazy and start asking these things, but what I'm saying is that use this as an opportunity to enrich ourselves. Don't be lazy about it. We don't know everything. Even if we've studied for six, ten years, we don't know and we can always find. Subhanallah, you know, there's been masail, there's been uh, a hadith uh, that I've been thinking, controversial ones that I've been caught out. Like the Naqisatul Aqli Waddeen. I remember the first time I was in Santa Barbara, California, uh, Santa Cruz, California for Taraweeh. After Taraweeh, we would hold a little program. And there were brothers and there were sisters on the other side. And this guy, he asked this question. He says, there's a hadith and it says that the Prophet ﷺ said that women are deficient. Right? In their intellect. I remember actually sitting on a flight once. When I was probably in the third year or fourth year of Alim class. I don't know where I was going. And I think it was, I was going to America for Taraweeh at the time. And um, basically, th this woman started asking me uh, about certain things. And I said, yeah, you know, women are deficient. <laughs> I said it like so casually. <laughs> because that's, I just took it straight from the hadith. And I said, yeah, you know, women are... Why would you say that? She was very polite. She's like, why would you say women? But look, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're very accomplished. You know, you've got professors and so on and so forth. And then I got stuck. 
right? I didn't know what to say after that. Because I was taking it purely theologically with somebody who's not going to accept that theology. They don't believe in the Prophet ﷺ. So that you have to answer separately in a different way that they understand. I can't tell them, but the hadith says that. I know they say, I know it says that, my belief is that, but that doesn't help them. I have to tell them first, I have to make sure they believe in hadith first, then say that is in the hadith. You see what I'm saying? So you can't just use that. Then it was in this whole gathering, and I'm there trying to answer questions, uh, and this is the question he asked, and I fumbled around. Then I got it in one more place, and then finally, I think I figured out how to at least answer the question. Now remember, there's going to be skeptics who will never agree. Right, who will never be convinced by your answer. But I think now we do have an answer that works, at least to a certain degree. A, a potential answer, because Allah knows best, the Prophet knows best what he meant by that, exactly. But at least we know, to a certain degree. So you can always learn more. And as I said, even of recent, when you're reading something, somebody will provide another way of answering, and you can just add that to your answers, if you want to be serious about this. But you have to be able to answer with your back straight. The most important point is this one. Evaluate the question first. Don't ever jump into answering a question because you will get caught out. And some questions are trick questions. Other questions are straw men arguments. If you look at the way they're built up, there's actually inaccuracies. So if you try to answer the question, the natija, the, 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 the actual uh, uh, conclusion, then you're already going on a wrong premise. You'll just get stuck. For example, uh, a question. If God is so merciful, why doesn't He help people understand Him? If God is so merciful and loves His people, why doesn't He help people understand Him so they all believe? What are the assumptions in this question? What are the beliefs that this question comes from? How would you answer this question directly? Well, the assumptions are that God hasn't helped us. Is that true? What about all these prophets, all the books, all the signs, anfusikum uh, in your own selves, uh, in, uh, in, uh, around you? What about all of that? Hasn't he helped us? Of course he's helped us. So the premise on which it exists, or which this question is formed, is wrong. So if you don't analyze the question, you know, you're going to get stuck trying to answer that because you can't answer this question. It's already a wrong answer. There's no way you can get it right unless you go above. That's very important. I give you an example. I was in, there's a college uh, close by, and every year they hold this theological, uh, sorry, they, they hold this interfaith program. So they collect questions from the students. These are all teenagers, right, with their hormones raging. They, 16, 18 year olds, they collect all their questions and then they invite a panel uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Buddhists and so on. So it was myself and they had invited this other sister. I didn't know who she was. First time I noticed her. She went before I did. So everybody gave a five minute talk about their religion or their convictions or whatever and then they had questions for them. First question after she finished five minutes, why do you wear that covering for? Why do you cover your head for? Why do you have to wear your head for? So what was the answer? What do you think is the answer? What do everybody say? Modesty. Okay. I could be modest without that. They'll probably say, but she didn't say that. She said, it's my choice. She gave the, the modern individual, uh, individualistic 
would you call it freedom based answer it's my choice that's a really stupid answer to be honest you know why why do you make that choice there are persuasions within your mind of why you make certain choices what made you make that choice? Choice. What indoctrinated you to make that choice? It's a very bad answer, to be honest. So what if it's your choice? They, they, they really like jumped on it. They, they, and I felt really sorry, but I couldn't say anything because I was... Then somebody else spoke. Then I spoke. And I just started my talk. I said, I, I want to just use this time because, you know, you, uh, there were a number of questions that were addressed to uh, the... Muslim sister before me about the hijab and so on. So I want to ask you a question. Now remember, what we're doing, as I said here, is evaluate the question first. Why are they asking this question? I said to them, what's the problem with having a hijab on their head? Why does it bother you? Like seriously, why does it bother you that she's got... Why do you even ask the question? You don't go and ask them, why you got jeans on for? Like why don't you ask that question? Why does this bother you? And what is the line on the body beyond which, which is improper to dress or cover? Where is that? Here, here, where is it? Who made that decision? Why is it better for somebody to wear jeans and a t-shirt as compared to somebody who wears a hijab and a abaya? What's the difference? Why is that better than this? Who decides it's better? What's the moral argument behind it? Right? Just because everybody's doing it, is that big enough? Is that strong enough? Who creates the value? And for you as Muslims, we would say, what is it that gives value to things and the morality to things to tell you what is good or bad? Is it the culture or is it Allah and His Messenger? Muslims need to get this right. That what, what is the criterion for you? So if we're dealing with a Muslim, we need to ask them that straightforward question. What is the criterion of right and wrong for you? Is it the society? Is it the community? Is it the custom? Or is it Allah and His Messenger? There's clearly going to be tensions between those two. Which one are you going to take? There has to be a, a give and take. Right? You're going, to have to, you're going to have to sacrifice some ideas. Which one are you going to sacrifice? When I ask them this question, that's when they just couldn't say anything. Because now I'm challenging the assumptions on which they made the question. I'm challenging why they're even asking this question is because of an ideology. See the difference between an idea and an ideology. An idea is just like, you know, should we go to the moon? That's an idea. Ideology is much more deep-seated in the heart. And people don't even know they hold that ideology and that's why they make certain judgments. I'll give you an example. Once I called somebody weird. I said, he looks weird. So a friend of mine, we say that, right? It looks weird. Look at the way he's dressed. We make these judgments. So my friend, he said, but you're also weird for, th for others. The way I'm dressed, they're going to think, when I went to Sri Lanka, they're wondering why I've got this. In India, this is fine. I mean, in Sri Lanka, everybody's asking me, like, why do you have carry a shawl around for you? Like, is this sunnah? But in India, everybody does it. So it's weird in one place, but not in another, because it's just not what we're used to. Something being weird is not that it's wrong. It's just we say that because we have this deep-seated idea that that's strange. That's why, for example, Imam Sha'arani, because I've had this issue for a while. You know, sometimes you see somebody who you just don't like for some reason. 
But if you're to ask yourself why you don't like that person, you don't know. Maybe it's because they blow their nose too much. Does it harm you? No, it doesn't. Maybe it's, there's a guy in my masjid, God bless him, he wears pink socks. All of his socks are pinkish for whatever reason. I don't know why. Seriously. It's various forms of pink. I mean, I've not had the courage to ask him, right? So, should I now start denigrating him, hating him because of this reason? I finally found the answer to this in Imam Sha'arani Rahmatullah's work. He's a great Egypt, uh, Egyptian sheikh, massive, right? The, you know, the big khanqa there, you know, and he's written a number of books, and a lot of the, those books have been translated into Urdu by our mashaykh as well. So, he says that part of in adab al-suhbah, the, the etiquette of brother, brotherhood, of companionship, he says when you have somebody like that, that you don't know why you don't like them, they just bother you, maybe because of the way they look. Some people have protruding teeth, and you just don't like the way they look, because proportionment is, an, is a natural human, uh, love for proportionment is what you call love. Love basically means that you're inclined to something that is beautiful. Beauty is defined as something being in proportion. That's really what it is. So if something is out of proportion, you have an aversion. So you know what he says? He says, make an extra effort to go and give them a gift, for example. To go and speak nicely to them so that you can cure right, your perspective on these things. Because you're being unfair. Subhanallah, that's amazing. And that's what I did try to do afterwards for certain individuals. I try to engage with them so I can gain familiarity. I guess this is just to talk about the psychology of trying to find out where people are coming from. Because that's going to be very important on how you can convince somebody of understanding where they So this is what I said. I said, for example, if you look at England and America, right, the English-speaking countries, they tend to, be, they tend to have a bit more... Uh, morality, just slightly more than, for example, the French people. Those guys there, you can tell a marked difference between you travel from Syria to Beirut. Right? Beirut is worse than the UK. Right? It was really crazy. But French are just more licentious because they have their laïcité and g g goes really extreme. So now, in England and in America, if a man wants to go around and, uh, what do you call it, without a t-shirt and wants to take a jog, nobody's going to complain about that. You know, he's got shorts on or jogging bottoms on and no top. Then I don't think anybody's going to complain because it's not illegal. But if a woman does that, she's going to be, it's illegal. Isn't there supposed to be freedom of rights? Now, this is not, I'm, I'm not arguing, I'm just showing inconsistencies. In France, that's okay. At any beach, that's okay. I think in Spain as well, it's okay. Right? But in England, it's not like that unless you go to specific places. Why is there a difference? If it's supposed to be absolute freedom, then why is there that difference? So, who makes that judgment? For us, Allah makes that judgment for us. So, remember why you wear the hijab? It's not because it's just your choice. The question is why do you have a problem with that? What is the issue with it? Why is it wrong? Why is it immoral? Why does it bother you? Right? Why is it why is your way of dress better than me? So many times, as I said, the question is not a valid question to start with, and if you try to answer it, you're already then accepted their premise and then you've already lost. 
because you, you, you will get stuck. Uh, that's why do not jump to answering questions without giving them sufficient thought. Take a step back, understand the assumptions and reasons behind each question. Now the first time you get a new question, it's going to bowl you over because it's the first time. You might get surprised. But when you do this enough, inshallah, then you'll be fast at responding because you would have already thought of the assumptions behind it. So it's just test, it's just try, it's just uh, training. Inshallah, you'll get better. And as I said, there are usually always some assumptions from which the question is stemming, and that needs to be addressed in order to get the correct concept across. Otherwise, you'll be ineffective and you'll just go around in circles. Because the problem is not that. Uh, once there's this guy who told me, a friend of mine said that there's a, uh, an old, uh, a 19, 20 year old, he has questions about Islam. I said, okay. Um, so we had a conversation with him. Um, sorry, this thing has gone down. So I had a conversation with him. So he had these questions about why do women get half and these questions. I'm trying to explain. And it's not working. Right? It's just not working. But so he just keeps every time he get, it's a convincing answer, he moves to something else. Then he moves to something else. And finally, you know what the problem was? I said, do you believe in Allah? And he said, yeah. Like that kind of a yes. So I thought maybe he's, because in America there's many families which they, the only thing they know about Islam is basically Eid and Ramadan. There's not much else, unfortunately, because they're so engaged in, you know, in, in their work and so on. But apparently this guy's brother is a, Muslim, uh, is a Hafid, of, is becoming Hafid of the Quran. So clearly he's from... But what the problem was is that he now doesn't believe in Allah properly. Convi he's not convinced. So now all of these things are issue. Is it worth arguing on those things now? You'll be going around in circles. It'll be an absolute waste of time. That's why when you notice that you're coming across a wall, dig deeper. And you'll find out that there's something behind it. That's very important to understand. And if you do get involved in something where you don't understand the assumptions, then you'll just probably be defensive and you won't be able to convince somebody. The next point is you can't be hasty in the discussion. Many of these questions require you literally to say, look, we don't have time right now. Let's go for a tea. Let's go for a coffee or something. Let's sit down and discuss this. Because you have to work out why they're asking that question. What drives them? What is... You know, for a lot of people, the problem is that maybe they are intellectually challenging something. Like they just think a lot. Others are looking for pastoral... They're looking for some kind of pastoral guidance. Maybe they've had problems in their life. Maybe they haven't had a father figure. Maybe they've had abuse. Lots of things cause people to react in different ways and adopt different ideologies. You know, people who are abused, one of the worst things that anybody can do is sexually abuse somebody. Uh, after hearing some stories, I would say that if you catch anybody, no matter who it is, you should, you should report them. Because the harm that does is massive. These people suffer for the rest of their life. 
I've dealt with brothers and sisters like that. They feel dirty. They feel they are responsible. If somebody took advantage of them when they were young, they feel they're responsible. They start feeling dirty. They, 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 they feel they're dirty. And then you can try to convince them for a few months it goes well and then it comes back. It's a very bad thing. So some people have dealt with abuse like that and that's just caused a very distorted idea about Allah and about other things. It becomes manifest in these shallow issues. So if you're trying to answer those shallow issues, you're wasting your time. You're not going to get anywhere. You have to try to understand that there's something behind it and deal with that, the home problems. They're looking just for love sometimes. That's why sometimes people ask that, you know, I've got a kid who's, uh, you know, uh, and we've had that case even locally. He, he didn't believe. Uh, Mullah Abdurrahim Sahib spoke to him. I spoke to him. All of his arguments from Dawkins. Every single argument of his was from Dawkins. He just hasn't read all the responses of the numerous responses that have been written. He hasn't read them. Literally cookie cut uh, questions, arguments, objections from Dawkins. But he, he had problems. He... Clearly there were issues. Now the mother is asking, should we keep him in the house? Should we? These people sometimes lead love. But then the problem is that then they start convincing others. They start corrupting their brothers and sisters. So there it becomes more complicated. Right? Anyway. Um, okay, so don't get hasty. It's too big and profound of a question to deal with in a few minutes. Have a, start off with a causal discussion. That helps a lot. You know the causal who created you. If, it, if it's about God, like is there a God or not? This works very well that if God created you, if you were created by your parents, your parents were created by their parents and so on. And if God was created by someone, then who was that other? It must be another God. Who was God too created by? You're going to keep going on and that's absurdity to go into that. So you can say that there has to be a non-contingent beginning somewhere. We'll, we'll go into that in a bit more detail. But basically for that you need time. You can't just give a quick answer. One way is to then take them on a causal train. Who created everything and then who created them and, and so on and so forth. Uh, use the design argument which Allah uses often in the Quran. Tell us to look at the skies, the mountains, the tectonic plates, animals, colors, races, oceans. And then themselves, how can such a variety come without a designer? Right? Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, said, you need tact. So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, he was amazing. Remember I... Sorry, this thing keeps going down, so... There you go. You need to use tact to convince somebody. You can't just give an answer. You can create a little drama to answer the question, to convince them. This is what Imam Abu Hanifa did once. Because remember, he was a scholar of Aqidah before even starting with his fiqh and jurisprudence. A group of... They were probably agnostics or atheists. I'm not sure the exact you know, uh, designation. But they, they had problems with understanding the Creator. So they came to Imam Abu Hanifa that we've heard, you know, you have a lot of answers and we want to ask you a few questions. And this is the way Imam Abu Hanifa played it. He said, I 
I've got no time right now to answer these questions. I'm really engaged in a very, very complicated question. Right? Uh, it's a very complicated question, very, uh, uh, and I, it's really occupying my mind. So they got curious. So he said, the question is that uh, there's a ship and it's sailing on its own. It carries the, the, the freight from one side, it navigates on its own, and it gets to the other side. Now, we don't have a problem with understanding that nowadays, right? Because it's all piloted, automatic pilot controlled, pre-programmed. In those days, they had no concepts of smart ships, right? There was no concept of that. So these guys just look at him incredulously. Like, what are you talking about? How is that even possible? How can you even uh, engage this question? So he said, that's exactly what the response to your question is. That if you can't even believe that one ship can do this, a small freight liner, how can you expect this entire world with all of its complexity to also be driven without a driver, without a designer? And mashallah, it says that they, they, they got it and they were convinced. So sometimes you have to use a bit of drama. Like don't, don't feel bad using drama of it if you have to. You don't have to like straightforward just give answers. You can give an answer in a way that is convincing. Because remember, one is to give ilm. The other one is the wisdom and hikmah by which you give, the, which you deliver that knowledge. I believe one aspect of wisdom is the way you deliver the knowledge. Right? You can deliver it in a very, in a very ineffective way, but deliver lots of it and it's useless. Or deliver a portion of it, but in a very effective way and it's very beneficial. So, uh, we're going to stop here soon because I uh, just want to give you a break and get you ready for the, the complicated stuff. Um, the intricate details and perfections with which everything has been created indicates a master planner and it can't be without random, without purpose. I mean, these things we're going to look at a bit more detail anyway. So, part three, we, we've, mashallah, we've stopped on time. So, part three is basically now to determine uh, these questions, and inshallah, we'll do that once you've had your chai pani, whatever it is that these uh, great hosts of ours, mashallah, have laid out for you. Right? So, may Allah bless them. And uh, bless all of you for coming. And inshallah, we'll see you after the prayer. Uh, but before we stop, d does anybody have anything related to what we said? Any clarifications? Maybe I can do one or two quick clarifications of anything we've said so far. No? You want chai? Please proceed then. Asalaamu Alaikum. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillah was salatu was salamu ala Sayyidil Mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd Before we move on to that I just want to mention one more thing to you which is very very important We were talking about skepticism and again this is something to give us an understanding of how to try to get people to understand using different strategies people who are skeptics see there's some people who uh, are absolutely outright denied deny God they just want nothing to do with the idea of theism they're called generally atheists and of course within atheists you've got various different shades right you've got various different shades and after that, you can call them a lighter version. Some people think actually atheists are closer than even agnostics. There's a debate about who is closer to believing in God, uh, the atheists or the agnostics. 
Because agnostics are those who say we don't know. We still have to keep looking. So you think there's some hope there, don't you? But that's really a very debilitating ideology. We need to keep looking. So even if you see something very convincing, no, there could be something more. We're not fully convinced yet. Whereas an, uh, an, uh, an atheist is complete denial. But then there are spectrums to show diff like the really hardcore atheists. And then there's some that are actually closer to, because they think possibly. So they're closer to being agnostic. Then on the agnostic, there's a range that are closer to atheists than there are to being, uh, what do you call it, uh, 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 just minor forms of agnosticism. Then there's another category that is generally not spoken about too much, but I like that category. And that was actually forwarded by this one author that, uh, whose book I've read. He's written a very wonderful book on the brain. His, uh, uh, his studies are mainly on the way the brain, the human brain works. I think his name is David Eagleman. So he's coined this term, I think it's his coinage, he coins it as um, possibilists. Now these are people who consider that uh, most likely, possibly there is a God. Do you think that's more than agnostics? It's definitely more than atheists, sorry, because atheists actually deny. So possibilists, they're actually saying possibly there is a God. So they're closer than agnostics, uh, sorry, they're clo closer than atheists, aren't they? Do you think they're closer than agnostics? Do you think there's more chance with possibilists? People who think possibly there is a God. Because agnostics think that we can't say, we're not sure, we have to keep searching, we have to keep looking. So possibilists are probably the closest, aren't they? And I think that's probably what it was. They looked at the other two things, atheists and agnostics, and said, no, I don't really fit on those two. I'm not an agnostic, I'm not an atheist. I must be a possibilist, right? But they're not taking. So the question that comes up now is that why do people not accept? What stops people from accepting? If you're so intelligent, then what is it that stops you from accepting? Hmm? Personally, I think it's the strictures of religion. It does away with your freedom. Because once you start believing in a God, then you better believe what He tells you to do. Right? So sometimes the only thing that is resisting, that is stopping you from believing, is the fact that you're going to have to get stuck in a system and you can't then do what you want. That's very difficult. I think the nafs is the biggest problem. And you know why? There's a fourth category which probably represents the majority of people. Agnostics, I don't think, re represent the majority. Nor does, uh, nor, nor, nor does agnostics, nor does possibilists. I don't want you to get lost in the terminology, so I'm going to try to explain these terminologies as much as possible. And if you, one right you have is that if you don't understand any term that I use, then you've got a right to put your hand up and demand an explanation. Right? Every other question will leave to the end, but if it's about a term, then you don't, don't, let your, don't let this class go forward. Make sure you understand, because I don't want anybody to lose. This is the biggest complaint that we didn't know what he was talking about, the terms he was using. It's like, you know, in, if he was teaching usul al-hadith, like, this is a mu'dal, this is munqati, like, what is he talking about? What's a mu'dal? What's a munqati? What's a mursal? What are these terms? So you use epistemology, like, what does that mean? I try to teach that to my seven-year-old. Right? Like, get him ready for it, because it's such an important term. We'll explain it later. 
But um, um, right now, let's atheist outright denial. Athe um, as atheist, then agnostic is we're still searching. We need to keep looking. Possibilist, most likely there is. But you know what the biggest problem is? Is apathy. What's what's the adjective for apathy? What do you call them? Huh? No, no, using the word apathy. Apathetic, yeah. It sounds pathetic anyway, that's why it's apathetic, right? This is, to be honest, within people who are in religion and outside of religion, you know what it means? I don't care attitudes. I can't be bothered. Why can't I be bothered? I've got my daily bread. I, I've got Amazon Prime. I can order whatever I want. Sometimes it comes the same day. Sometimes it comes the next day. I've got Netflix. I can watch whatever I want. I can basically keep watching until you know I can't watch any longer. I can binge. I've got all of these things. Why do I need to? I've got the clothing I want. I've got the food I want. I can go out, eat anywhere. I can basically enjoy whatever I want. I don't need it. Maybe religion is buried deep down in the background. There's a lot of Muslims like that, meaning in Muslim households. The biggest problem are not atheists. The biggest problem is apathy. At least the atheists know they don't believe in God. So you can actually have a conversation with them. Right? But when it comes to apathy, they just don't care. They're not going to look. They're not going to seek. They have no guilt. They're not going to search. There's no talab. That's the most difficult category we're dealing with. So how do you deal with that? That's something we need to really think about because that's not just in Muslims, it's in every religion. Okay, so skepticism. I want to just explain what skepticism is. Skepticism, doubt. Is that really true? Is it really daytime? Do things really exist? Haqa'iqul ashya'i thabitatun As that's how uh, some aqidah text starts, this is exactly, they establish that things do exist in reality. But do they exist in reality? Is that really a green board there? Or is it just an illusion you're seeing? I can feel it. But isn't that just an illusion? Well, it's good enough for us. It might be an illusion, but it works for us. So Alhamdulillah, it exists. That's enough for us. Otherwise, the only true existence is Allah, really. The one who's always going to exist, who must exist who can not, not exist. It's only Allah like that. So we are definitely contingent beings in the sense that we only exist because Allah wanted us to exist. Otherwise, we didn't have to exist. There's that guy who's suing his parents for bringing him into the world. Right? You, you heard this recently, last week, I think. There's a guy who's going to sue his parents for that. Right? We're possible beings. <laughs> Subhanallah. But anyway, the main thing is that how far can skepticism go? That's what I want to tell you. If somebody is beset with skepticism, if they, you know like OCD, OCD, I was in a masjid a few, uh, um, a few months ago, in another masjid, and I had to do wudu, salat had already started, see this guy next to me, now I've had lots of calls for people with OCD, and I can't deal with it, I tell them, I don't have the qualification to deal with you, I don't have the expertise, don't come to alims. Because I don't have it, I'm serious, because we're not trained to deal with OCD. It's a psychological problem, it's a, a mental problem, it's not a religious problem. There's this guy, he's from another country, he emails the same question over and over again. And he doesn't just email me, he's emailed at least 30 different people, because sometimes you can see everybody's emailed. 
And then he says, he sent me an email recently, he said, uh, I emailed this uh, sheikh called Asim Hakim, right? And this is a very rude answer he gave me. I don't blame him to be honest, right? Seriously, I don't blame him because he keeps asking the same question about the way he thinks about Allah in some really rude ways, right? I gave him an answer already. We asked the same question again. So then he tells me that, look, um, the psychologists have told me that this is a religious question, a religious issue, and I'm telling him it's a psychological issue. So then I told him, I said, look, you know the answer, I'm going to write you an answer. Every time you have the question, the urge to ask again, just read this answer, because my answer is going to be the same each time. But beyond that, I can't help you because I don't have the training to help you. OCD. Similar way, skepticism means doubting things. No, I, that, that's probably not like that. No, it's probably not like that. It's not like that. That's skepticism. Do you know how far this can go? This is, we understand from one story of Imam Ghazali. And wonderful thing about Imam Ghazali, may Allah bless him. Uh, he, oh, this, this chair is a musical chair. Maybe it's, it's there to keep us fresh or whatever the case is, but hopefully it won't go down again. Imam Ghazali, the one thing that he's left for the world which is really beneficial is that he wrote his own biography. He wrote an autobiography. Al-Munqidh min al-Dalal. And you should read it. Because mashallah, it's amazing of his journey, of this, uh, this high intellectual who really went to the core of things. He says, a time came when I started thinking that Muslim children born in Muslim households, right? They believe in Islam, they're convinced by Islam. But is the fact that they are convinced by Islam, is that uh, evidence for the truth of Islam? Because we've seen Christians who are born in Christian households, they're convinced about Christianity. And Jews who are born in Jewish households, they're convinced about Judaism. So how can you say that's evidence? Right? That's basically environment. That's not evidence, you know, because depending on where you're born in, you're probably going to be more convinced about that. So I thought, he said, that I wanted to go back and strip everything away and start with absolute axiomatic beliefs. Axiomatic means those things nobody questions. One plus one is two. Does anybody question that? That's a priori knowledge. Right? These are fancy words. A priori knowledge, immediate knowledge that you don't have to think too deeply about. Is black and white different? Yes, it is, right? Nobody denies that. That's a priori knowledge, something you know. It's something everybody kind of inherently knows to a certain degree. Is 10 greater than 2? That's, again, an axiomatic understanding that everybody has. He says, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to start off with these absolutes, these absolute maxim beliefs, uh, or uh, you can say axiomatic beliefs, and I'm going to use them to prove things. So he said, I did that, but I then became skeptical even about that. And he said, it became so much bewilderment that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not helped me, then it would have been bewilderment. Why? Because he said, look at this example, right? When's the last time you had a dream? Especially a frightening dream. When you're in your frightening dream, don't you think you're in reality? Is there any doubt in your mind? Because if there was, it wouldn't be frightening. So when you're frightened in a frightening dream, you are in what you would call a, a frame of what you think is reality. And you think, oh no, look what I've just done, or I've just had an accident, or I've lost this, or so-and-so died, or whatever. And 
you're sweating even. It has a biological reaction as well. And you wake up and you think, Alhamdulillah, that was just a dream. But while we were in the dream, wasn't it a reality for us? It seemed like a reality. So he said that what we're experiencing now in what we would term as wakefulness, like we're awake right now. What about if this is also the same? And tomorrow we wake up from this and we discover that this is also a dream. How can you prove that that's not the case? Can you see, if you want to be doubtful, then just as we think a dream is a reality when we're in it, and we only discover when we're out of it that it was just a dream, then how do you know this is also not like a dream? How do you even prove that? And you know, on the Day of Judgment, to be honest, I mean, when a person does die, the haqaiq, the realities do dawn, and then you find out that this was a dream, uh, in that sense. So can anybody prove that they're not in a dream right now? So he said, there's just certain things you can't, there's nothing. That's why, afaman sharahallahu sadrahu lil-islam. You need to have, you need to, there has to be a leap at some case. And that is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to provide somebody. So that's basically Imam Ghazali's dilemma, the dream versus reality. Is reality another dream? It's just another layer of dream. I remember once I was sitting with this uh, famous Muslim comedian, who was a friend of mine. Uh, on the flight, we were coming back from uh, a country and he said, Shaykh, you need to watch this movie. I said, which one? He said, forget the name of it. He said, you need to watch this. This is shaitan. You need to understand this. Because he's in Hollywood. He's, not, he's dealt with the media, right? So he says, the whole thing is shaitaniyat. And he says, this dream, sorry, this movie, it's called, uh, it's about guys who inject something and then they go into a dream. And then they do stuff in their dream and then they inject something in their dream and they go into another dream. And that's like suspended. That takes longer and inception or something. Is that right? Some of you will know that, right? Huh? Oh, they pretend they don't know, right? Inception or some crazy like you should need to you need to understand how these things work. But anyway, um, it, it's it's actually quite scary where uh, you know the research that's going on. It's actually quite scary where things are going. Um, but anyway, let's move on to our topic. So these questions are what we're going to look at. Um, so who is God, and how can we how can we know Him? Why do we have to believe in something we cannot see? Why does God hide himself from us? If God is loving and righteous, then uh, he should help us to understand him. Why are there so many gods? Why is Zeus not God, for example? Do all religions lead to God? I mean, these might sound very common, but I think it's important to deal with them. Firstly, the biggest question, why do we have to believe in something we can't see? Why do we have to believe in something we can't see? Why does God hide himself from us? How can we know God if we can't see him? These are all related questions, but they said like, why do we believe in something we cannot see? It's actually a different question to uh, how do we believe in God if we can't see him? No, that is the same thing. So, aren't there so many things? Um, why does God hide himself from us? Does God hide himself from us? It depends on what you mean, what aspect of God you're talking about. If you want to see him blatantly like you see others, then clearly that's not going to happen because of the nature of Allah is. 
that he is not something like Tudriku al-Absar as Allah says in the Quran is not something that can be comprehended so many aspects of God can only be revealed about him so let's look at this from both an Aqidah perspective and a general rationalist perspective Allah who's a you, through, ration, through your rational faculties the way our ulama have dealt with it is that they've not tried to explain who Allah is in his comprehensive nature through rationality because that's impossible some aspects about Allah now listen to this carefully some aspects of Allah can be understood through intellect purely through intellect just by observing the world and using your intellect to figure it out other aspects can't be understood rationally those can only be understood by Allah telling us about them things. So what are the things that can be understood through rationality? If you pick up our Aqidah books, like if you pick up, uh, for example, the Kharida Bahia of uh, Imam Dardir and others, that they, they say that when you observe the world around you, you have to start with the world because it's a reality we're living in. Right? So you start looking around at the world and you think, okay, you've got this wonderful world, you've got this world, it's all, all uh, got the variety, it's uh, created, you see a movement, you see things perishing, you think it's coming to be, right? nothing actually lasts forever, and so on and so forth. And we know that there's a causal train, a causal effect, everything seems to be caused by, you look at this and you see this logo and you know that it was you know, Apple company, you see this one and it's Microsoft, right? so you know where things come from. Right, that's the way everything in this world works. Whenever we see anything, we want to know where it comes from. Who made it? Who designed it? Who's the manufacturer, for example? Right? So, what they generally say is that they prove the, the maker, the creator first. They don't prove Allah. They prove the creator first. That if all of this world is made, there must be a maker. Just like for everything else. Do you understand what I'm saying? First talk about a maker, not about Allah. Right? Because when I say Allah, I mean very comprehensive right? being. Let's talk about a maker, because we want to take it step by step. Now, we understand that there's a maker. We can infer and comprehend that he's a maker. Now, if he's the maker, like if somebody says Steve Jobs was an idiot, would you agree to that? In one sense, he didn't become a Muslim, he, his, fa his father was supposed to be a Muslim. Maybe in that sense you can say so. But in terms of a worldly sense, from a manufacturing perspective, making perspective, you're not going to say that, are you? So this world is so wonderful, it's, it's great and so on. It has to have a maker. Now for that maker to be the maker of this world, there has to have some characteristics. Because he can't just be a maker with no qualities. For him to have created a world with so wonderful qualities. So what are them? Number one, you can say... He must exist. He must have what we call in Arabic wujud. He must have existence. Because if he doesn't exist, then he can't be there. He can't be the maker. Maker must exist. Steve Jobs existed. I want to use that parallel, but you know what I'm saying. Number two. Number two. He must have had knowledge. To be able to create everything in such a harmony such beauty, such wonder, he must have had knowledge. He must have knowledge. So ilm. We've just established wujud, existence and ilm. He must be living, obviously. Whether wujud and living, same thing. He is living. He can't be living. If your existence, he's still living. He's still looking after. Number three, uh, number four, 
to be able to create all of this, you've got knowledge about something. There's so many people who have great amount of knowledge, but they don't do anything with their knowledge because they lack the power. They lack resources. So for Allah to have, the maker to have created everything, he must have power. So now we've just established Qudrat, Qudra, omnipotence, right? Power. And for a person to have power and knowledge, they must be able to exercise their power and make decisions about the power, about what they want to make. That means Allah has will and irada. All of this has to be rationally the case. Right? Because if you're going to think of a maker, you don't, uh, rationally you can't prove that Allah listens or Allah sees even. That's something we understand from the Quran and Sunnah. But the fact that he's alive, that he exists of course, that he has knowledge, that he has power, and that he has will to do whatever he wants, all of that can be rationally understood. Now once we've understood that, we're going to look for where, that, where we get that definition, and Allah tells us in the Quran that he, also, he is those things, and he is more things. So all the other 99, the 99 and other names, they are understood through the revealed sources, not just through the rational faculty. So about everything else, he tells us where it is. But we can at least establish, at least the maker who is knowledgeable, powerful, living, and with will. With will. Right? We can at least establish that much. Whether he has kalam or not, whether he speaks or not, that's a separate point. We know that because of the Quran, for example. So that is who Allah is. We've just used rationality on a very basic level to understand that who Allah is just through using our intellect. Right? I know this is a very basic exercise. So how can we know Him? We establish it. Now, why do we have to believe in something we cannot see? And why does God hide Himself from us? So now, the question we're going to ask to anybody who has, who this bothers, is everything you believe in, have you observed it? Meaning everything that you believe in, have you seen it yourself? Do you believe that your great, great, great grandfather existed? I mean, don't stop at great and great because somebody may have seen them. I mean, I've seen my great grandfather and two great grandmothers. Not the great, great ones. I've seen them on a passport picture, but not, not in reality, right? So, do you believe that your great, great, great ancestor existed? I don't think anybody's going to deny that. But you haven't seen him. So aren't there things that we believe without seeing them? I know these sound like really simplistic arguments, but at the end of the day, we're just trying to get people used to the idea that we all believe in things that we have not seen. You don't have to see things to believe them. Because not all realities, what, the, the way to say this is, not all realities are empirically verifiable. Empirically means through your five senses. Not all realities are empirically verifiable. You don't have to verify everything through observation, touch, taste, smell, and so on. There's just other ways of understanding things. Who said that we should only believe in what we see? Who's, who's given that rule? Why is there such a rule that we, you can only believe in what you see? That's not something we agree to. It is not only through the five senses that we arrive at the knowledge of things. There are other ways of understanding things. 
For example, inference, right? Induction. You, you see one example of something and you then say, everybody's like that, right? You, one dog bit somebody and now they're scared of all dogs. That's induction, right? And that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? One, somebody gets bitten and they think now all dogs, they're paranoid about dogs now. They have a phobia of all dogs, whereas all dogs don't bite. This was induction. Induction just means you take one example and then you apply it to everybody. We do this a lot. You have a problem with one Gujarati, all Gujaratis become like that. Right? You have a problem with one Punjabi, all Punjabis are like that. That's induction. And sometimes those inductions are correct, but a lot of the times they're wrong. Right? Most of the time they're wrong in fact. Now I'm trying to make it, the pink socks, I'm trying to make that an induction. I, I, okay look, when I saw that pink socks, it, sh whether that's me, shaitan, whatever, it gives me these ideas. I have to resist making a judgment. Right? I have to make, because as somebody said to me that maybe something got thrown into, maybe wife's red dress got thrown into it and white socks became pink and he doesn't want to waste them and he doesn't want to use bleach either so that's why he's wearing pink socks. Maybe that's the case. So what is the value of inference then if you have to see everything? There are many other ways of arriving at realities. Many other ways. For example, wet ground. You came out of the house and there's wet ground. You never saw the rain, right? You came out and you just saw wet ground. What are you going to assume? That it had rained. No, it didn't have to, did it? Somebody could have sprayed it. Right? Maybe there was a movie set. Maybe just sprayed it to make it look like rain. Um, do you believe in electromagnetic radiation? Ibn al-Qayyim has this interesting chapter in his uh, Had al-Arwah about how things are going to be cooked in paradise. Because you're going to get roasted birds instantly. So he's saying, if it's paradise and not hellfire, how are you going to get roasted birds in paradise? Because you need fire. Remember, he's talking at a time when there's no microwaves, or there's no halogen cookers, or electric cookers, or induction cooking. So he says, no, but if Allah can do this, He can do that, He can have things cook without fire, you don't need fire. Today it's a reality. They were, ex they were trying to explain that in those days. Today it's a reality that I don't have gas in my house. There is no fire in my house. Right? It's all electric. Everything's electric. Right? Because I live in one of those places, they just have electric. So, um, people believe in electromagnetic radiation, but it's not something you can see. Uh, so we shouldn't restrict ourse uh, ourselves to our senses only as that's going to blind us to a lot of truths. And I think anybody with any bit of intellect will, will agree to that. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to show us His signs through the Qur'an and the Prophets. So Allah tells us who He is. He sent Prophets to do that. He's, he's left books with us to do that. And then there's many other ways people who are explaining those books and explaining those teachings. We have to, all we're told to do is use your reason and logic that he's provided us, the aql that he's provided us to find him. To figure out these signs, to look at these lessons and to be able to understand. God doesn't have to give us everything through fireworks. You can, you can do it with your own mind. 
It doesn't have to be like this big display. Here, here it is for you. But the problem is that since we live currently in an empirical world at present, we live in it because science is everything now for the last 50, 100 years or whatever it's been. So since we live in an empirical world, it puts a lot of pressure for us, on us, to try to prove everything through verifiable observation, empirical science. That's the only problem. There's a lot of pressure. So I think the main thing here is to just give them examples of things that we believe in without having seen them. So I guess the next question is, if God is loving and righteous, then he should help us to understand him. Now I've already dealt with that one, right? Because here, obviously, there's an assumption that he hasn't helped us. That's why they're saying that. So this is not a sound question. He sent books, prophets, proofs, signs in the environment, the cosmos, signs within us. His artistry around the world is designed, tells us of him as a designer, right? As an artist. His display of might tells us that he's mighty. A simple example is uh, a few years ago, I was with a friend of mine in, um, uh, what do you call it, Victoria Falls. They're the most beautiful falls I've seen, much better than Niagara Falls. They're very natural. And depending on where you are, they have a different impression on you. And actually they call them, the, the, there's one called the, 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 what do you call it, the armchair fall. Because when you look at it from that place, it's just amazing. So we were there and you're seeing this whole cascade, this whole body, immense body of water just tumbling down. And you're like wondering. So I said, wow, how beautiful Allah's Qudrat is. And my friend, he says, I think he said how beautiful it is. And I said, how mighty the Qudrat of Allah is. Now they're both correct. Is it mighty or is it beautiful? Allah is both. Allah has might and he is also beautiful. So you can have beauty and might at the same time. There's nothing. It's just different observation, different demonstrations, manifestations of his signs, of his own names, of his own ability. That's how Allah tells us. You just need to look. <clears throat> okay, I'm, I'm going through these quickly so that these are, because these were promised. Uh, did you have any, you didn't have any questions on the poster, did you? You didn't have any sample questions on the poster, did you? Okay, you did. Then that's why we need to go through them. Otherwise, people here, we didn't get our deal. You know, we didn't get what we came for. So, anyway. If God, uh, why are there so many gods then? This is a very interesting question. Why are there so many gods? How do you answer that? Somebody give me an answer. Why are there so many gods? Yes. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. That's wonderful. You see, <clears throat> the reason why there are so many concepts of gods around the world, among various different people, whether they become a formal religion or just a folkloric uh, group, whatever it is, is that people, human beings, the way Allah created us, is they have this inherent natural need for a deity. An object of worship. It's a human need to worship something. You might say, but atheists, they probably worship something else. Right? Whether that be money, position, power, influence, your iPhone, uh, Manchester United, 
shaitan basically, right? I don't support anybody else, so it's not a, one of those things, right? It's not one of those things. It's not like I'm talking about another team, right? It's just that I find it really tough. Uh, I was in the haram once in Mataf and some guy was there with a rucksack, uh, not rucksack, uh, one of those bags, you know, those shoe bags, whatever you want to call them, gym bags, Manchester United. I went up to him, I couldn't help it, I don't want to bother people there, but I said, brother, you bought the shaitan in the masjid. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you bought the shaitan in the masjid. And he was very upset. I don't know if he's upset because he bought the shaitan in the masjid or he's upset that I made that comment, right? Because you have to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? So, um, so those who do and you feel uh, insulted, please walk out if you want. No, I'm just joking. Um, what I don't understand is that if I've been supporting Liverpool since the last 30 years, I've never been to Liverpool, maybe I have, but I'm saying somebody's not been to Liverpool. Everything's changed. Where, why you supported them in the first place, right, when Sammy Lee was there and all these other guys, right, why would you still want to support them? You don't even know these guys. So many changes have taken place. They've done good and bad. Okay, now you've got that Salah guy, right? But do, do you see what I'm saying? Why would you... Some people, because they supported somebody from a young age, now they still support them. I'm looking at this analytically, like why would you want to continue supporting them? Why do you feel so crazy about it? Why do you feel so connected and so defensive when those guys don't even know you? And if they saw you on the street, they don't really care about you either. So why do you feel so strongly about it? What's the psychology behind that? Think about that. Uh, because that's what we're talking about, right? So anyway, humans have this natural need in them for something to revere, respect. And uh, when they determine something to be a deity, then what they're doing is they're just responding to this inherent need, their inbuilt, innate need. That's all they're doing. So for example, what do people make as their gods? Generally the biggest thing that they can see or observe. The most powerful thing. So that's why you have large trees. So if you go to Africa, there's the banyan tree, which by, for many tribes is considered to be, because it's quite complex tree. It's a very interesting gnarled kind of, you know, the, it's, it's bark kind of like twists around. It's quite an interesting tree. So they consider that to be God. Right? Because of whatever the benefit is from there. Some people consider the moon to be their deity. Because it provides light at night. And that's very important to them. That's the biggest thing they can see. Some people the sun. Some people the sea. Ibrahim salam's journey that he displayed shows the same idea that there's this idea of thinking of the greatest thing to be your, your God or your object of worship or your object of love. A mountain. Maybe an animal. For some people it's an animal, that's why you have cows walking on the streets in India. And you're driving, cow comes, you better stop. Right? It, it, you, you, don't, you don't mess with a cow in India, seriously. For some people it's the reproductory organ. Right? They call it Lin Puja, the reproductory organ. Right? Because there's a life that comes from it. So that is just different concepts. People apply, oh this must be God. We need to value, we need to honor this. These are obviously shallow exercises in determining a deity. There's no refinement in this, is there? Because there's some benefit I see from it, it must be God. That's why you have multiple deities then. What do you mean by a deity? It's just an object of your love? Okay, fine. You want to love it? Khalas. 
But if you want to make that, the, you then want to impose on it powers for the whole world. And that's a problem, isn't it? Like, I can't complain if you want to love this bottle of water. That's not a problem. You can do that. It's silly, but you can do that. But if you start then putting into it ideas that, oh, that must control everything, that's problematic. Humans have a number of natural needs, right? And they're satisfied by this godhood, this god figure that, has, that should have the ability to take care of it all. That's why today, if you look at it, we keep going on about atheists, but as I said, they're just loud, they're a minority though. Majority of the world are believers. So if you've got 2 billion Christians, and you've got 1.8 or 7 billion Muslims, that's 3.7 billion, that's over half. Right, of the 7 billion population of the world. And then you've got the Jews and you've got others who believe in a God. To be honest, what's interesting is that in the Middle Ages there were more Muslims than there were Christians. You know, this current, this is something very interesting that I learned recently. Right now they say by census at least that there's more Christians than Muslims. Over a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, there were more Muslims than Christians. Now you're going to wonder why, right? And I was like, that why? When, when the person told me, I was incredulous versus. Because Africa didn't have a religion. They had their local religions, except those that had already been Islam. North Africa, a lot of East Africa, they were Muslim. North and East Africa, a lot of that Kenya, Tanzania, that area, or parts of Kenya at least, and all of North Africa, and then parts of West Africa, down to Ghana, right? A lot of that is Muslim. The, all the others were not Christian. That was all done by who? The colonizers of the last 200 years. The Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, and the English. South America, North America. That wasn't Christian. They were not Muslim either. But there were no Christians there. They all became Christian afterwards. Because again, Brazil, biggest country there is Portuguese. Then you've got the British colony of Guyana. Then you've got French Guinea. And you've got uh, Dutch Suriname. And then all the rest is Spanish. That is all Christian. That's huge. America's three bill, uh, 30 million population. So if you looked at it before, it was totally different. But anyway, that's the reality right now. What are we going to do about it? Right? We, we need to do something about it. Oh, no, have you got a... No, okay, leave it. Otherwise, I'll have to go on that chair. So... Basically, human beings, they need a feeling of awe for something, a belonging, love, protection, and security. That is their God figure. And they inject that, they project that onto certain things. So, such existent, you call these existential questions, these real questions that people have, they can only be satisfied by a lot of people by a belief in a truly comprehensive God. So, our now... You've got all of these ideas of God, concepts of God. This religion has a concept of God. Jews have various different concepts of God because they don't all agree. Christians have various different concepts of God. If somebody was to take all the concepts of God that they could find, whether that be through Buddhism or uh, Buddhism, they don't really because humans can become God in Buddhism, right? But in Hinduism, in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam, and you're to get the most comprehensive definition of each of these, you will find that for the purpose for which people want God, a God, whatever that God is, they'll find the greatest satisfaction in the Muslim concept of God. Because it is the most comprehensive in terms of the beautiful names, the meaning of Allah himself, itself, 
and the attributes and what we ha- what we how our theology explains our Allah. So essentially if somebody is given a range of ideas of God, which one range of products, you're going to pick the most comprehensive products. I don't want to reduce it to that, but I'm just trying to give that logic. The Muslim concept of God, if you objectively are to study all concepts of God, you'll probably find Islam the least contradictory, the most intuitive, right, and the most natural, and the most satisfying for every need that a God is supposed to fulfill. Now, can you explain that in a few minutes? You can't, right? You have to sit down and explain this. And then there's going to be counter questions and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So basically, our understanding of Allah, which comes from our Quran and Sunnah, is the most refined understanding of any deity who can satisfy the human need through his essence, attributes and actions. So there are many concepts of God, but there is only one real God who can be worth attributing to the real God. Just because people call something God doesn't make them God. That's really what it is. Okay, so the good question now, why is Zeus God? Sorry, not God. Why is Zeus not God? One example, for example. The reason I'm saying this is because I went, uh, uh, a few months, several months, it's about four or five months ago now, I went with my father and brother for a historical tour of, uh, of Athens and um, uh, Greece. Greece, Athens, and uh, what's the other place called? Uh, no, 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 no. This wasn't sites. This wasn't like holiday sightseeing. This was historical. So, not Mount Athos, the other one. No, not Olymp- Mount Olympus, the other one, um, which was the center of the Greek mythology, where they had the Pythia, whatever. Right? It's this amazing, amazing location. Anyway. And this is over 2,500 years old, much of it originally built by Pericles. You know, the, then when you go to Athens itself, you've got the, the, um, the Parthenon and so on. I was just sitting there wondering, how can somebody believe in these 12 gods that were... This, it was like a soap opera. You know, one used to kill the other, they had a fight, romance. Typical soap opera. Like, weird, why would you believe that? Now, if this was just some low idea that came and went, I don't understand. But they ruled the world, the Greeks ruled the world. Alexander, right, from Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece, right, and that's why there's this whole problem with the new Macedonia, which they've just changed their name because the Greeks were saying, why are you calling yourself Macedonia when the real Macedonia is north of Greek? The Thessaloniki, that, uh, that, that area. So, I was just like, how can such a weird idea capture so many people as conquerors of the world. And uh, that, that's... So Zeus, apparently everybody studies this Greek myth- mythology. So why is Zeus not a god? When he was claimed to be god, believed to be a god by so many people. Well, number one, he was begotten. So he had a father and mother. That's, they, they, you know, he's not fatherless or motherless. He came from parents. So number one, he's caused... He was caused by somebody else. Right? He was in need of coming into this world. And our concept of God is that He doesn't, He's not caused. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. He's not caused. He doesn't need anybody. He is Himself independent. So that's a fundamental, that should be a fundamental characteristic of God. 
Why does God have to come from somewhere? From someone means he is needy of that person or of that being. Number two, rationally, we can demonstrate the need for an uncreated creator or a first cause. Okay, let, let me unpack that a bit. If everything has to be caused by something else, and then we say that God has to then also be caused, because that would be the natural way of asking. Because when in the world we think everything is made by somebody else, so the natural question that comes up from children as well is that then who created God? Or what was before God? It's a natural question that comes to people. So what are the possibilities now? Let's explore the possibilities. Okay, so you've got God. Let's call him God, God One. Right, that's our first God. The, the one who created all the world. Who created it? Another God. So God Two. Alright, so who created God Two? God Three did. And God Three, God Four. How far are you going to go? Do you understand? How far are you going to go with this? Eventually you have to stop somewhere. So, um, just one moment. There's something that I want to see if I can present to you. So, imagine this, right? Imagine if your car broke down. And you asked somebody to help you push it. Because you need somebody to push it. So you asked your neighbor or somebody in the street, can you help me please? He says, I am only going to push it if my neighbor pushes it. So your neighbor is saying, I'm only going to push it if my neighbor pushes it. So that means he's not going to push. He has to be caused to push it. The way he has to be caused to push it is his neighbor pushes. So you go to his neighbor, can you please push? So he says... I'm not going to do this one unless my neighbor pushes it. So you've got three neighbors now. And the third one says, I'm not going to, my neighbor, fourth one says the same thing. Are you ever going to get the job done? Because your neighbor's stream, mashallah, is going to keep going on. At least in humans, you can understand that eventually it's going to stop somewhere and somebody's going to have to say, well, my neighbor, somebody has, my neighbor, he doesn't have a neighbor. Or it's going to come back to the first neighbor. Because eventually you're going to go around... And then that's going to come back to this first neighbor. That's what you call circular. So that job is never going to get done. But if we now see that the car is being pushed, so if it was that kind of a scenario, and then you suddenly saw that the car was being pushed, what are you going to assume? If everybody was saying, my neighbor must do it first, then you suddenly saw that the, world, the car was being pushed. What do you, what do you uh, conclude from that? That eventually one neighbor did not say that my neighbor must push. He said, okay, fine, I'll start it off. Do you understand? Shall I start that again? Right? I need some more reaction so I know whether otherwise I can repeat it or I can just carry on. So I need some reaction. Once you've seen it being pushed, then you know that somebody was not so foolish to say that. And he must have pushed, so the second guy pushed, the third one pushed, and all the way until this got pushed. So if the world is created now, and if we were to say, he created him, he created him, he created him, and that was to go on forever, you wouldn't have had a creation. Because when would it have started? That means there must have been one who first said, okay, I'm going to start it off. That is God. 
otherwise it's going to carry on or it's going to come back around if everything if everybody is finished it's going to come back around to the first one because he's going to be the neighbor of the other guy the last one on the other side that's going to be circular reasoning so that's why there has to be a beginning there has to be a beginning maybe next time i'll make a diagram for this and just make it easier to understand right um So, we understand now that Zeus could not, could not have been God because he came from someone else. Number three, if you study that, when you have a God, you must believe that he has this dignity and this specific respect and awe and so on. If you're studying Zeus, if you know anything about Greek mythology and Zeus, then he's probably not the best candidate for this anyway. His antics, his crazy antics, right, doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't fit the bill for a God anyway. And so he's not the man for the job. So now let's move on. Do all religions lead to God? This is like on another level now. Do all religions lead to God? Why Islam? Tell me, what's the answer to that one? Do all religions lead to God? Just because you call it a religion, it must lead to God? Let's just say, what's the posh area of Birmingham? Do you have one? Aston. Sorry? Little Aston. Allahu Akbar. Where is that? Okay. It's too complicated for me, Little Aston. Let's just say Chelsea. Everybody has heard of Chelsea? Right? In London, it's supposed to be like a posh area, Knightsbridge. Right? I'm going to go to Knightsbridge and I'm going to set up a new religion there, made in Knightsbridge, made in Chelsea, to give it that you know, additional flair. Or I'm going to go to Santa Cruz, California, right? To give it that mystical kind of look and feel. Just because somebody creates a new religion or develops a new religion, does that make it a viable religion that it has to lead to God? It's just a claim. You know the Qadianis that we have? Christians have Qadianis as well. They're called the Mormons. What was his name? Smith. Something Smith in New York, right? Um, I think it was him. So I've been, I, I've been to Salt Lake City, which is their headquarters. They are massive. They're, they're one of the wealthiest, they're some of the wealthiest Americans, uh, very wealthy, and they have proper tabligi jamaat, right? They they have they they proselytize. They are admission. So they they you get these two guys. They generally two guys in suits with a rucksack, and they go and they convert people. And the Christians hate them. What's his name? Joseph Smith. I think it was like John Smith, but Joseph Smith, right? He started off in New York. So the Christians, the mainstream Christians, they hate them just like generally we have that issue with with Qadianis but they're very wealthy and they're very you know they're, they're, they've got their own TV channels they've got universities and so on and so forth so can you would even Christians agree that Mormonism right Church of Latter-day Saints they call it that leads to God how do you determine a valid religion so religions at the end of the day have to provide a certain amount of guidance and benefits Right? There's a certain amount of guidance and function that a religion has to have. So just because somebody calls it religion doesn't become the church of Satan, the church of Skaten. They have that as well. Right? So we believe that only Islam, it can show it through historical development that you had Allah sending various prophets like Abraham, which the vast majority of the world would believe in, that there was Abraham, the other religions would believe so. And then you had Judaism, 
that was abrogated through, Christ, through the evangel, through Injil of Isa Islam, through Jesus, peace be upon him. And then that became manipulated and changed and altered and thus Allah sent Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa It's in the same, uh, it just follows in that order, cancelling out the previous one, distortions removed. So if you're to study Islam objectively, looking for something that's comprehensive enough and not cancelled out and fresh and most recent, then you'll find that Islam is the best candidate to be the religion that leads to God. Because it has enough of a concept of God in there as well. So anyway, the, I'm, I'm doing this very short, uh, in short and in brief because of our time, just so that you understand ways to argue these things. The next, part, the next one, how can we know Islam is the truth without studying every path possible? I've already half answered that, but let's see. Let's t take all the traditions out there, all the religions out there, all the paths out there, and we start objectively studying each one. That would be very difficult because there's so many localized ideas of, of religions, right? So let's take the big ones that have a certain amount of follow, following. So we're going to compare all of them. You know, you do online comparison. We're going to do a comparison of them. So number one, if you look at Islam now, and you compare the Qur'an to the Evangel, the Torah, etc. The Qur'an is the only scripture that claims to come from God as a divine scripture that is still in its original language and it wasn't invented just a hundred years ago. It was revealed 1400 years ago. It stood the test of time, earliest to the latest uh, manuscripts and uh, 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 fragments or whatever you find, they say the same thing. So that's number one. The wording is the same. No wording has changed. Uh, number two, everything that has been attributed to the Prophet has also been recorded, at least the majority of it. And then it has been sifted to say what is most likely, what is definite, what is less likely, hadith, da'if, and so on and so forth, through a, a very exacting science. We know more about the Prophet ﷺ than we know about all the other Prophets. For him to be the role model, we have the most comprehensive idea about the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ than we know of Jesus or of Moses or anybody else. For, it, for them to be a role model, for example. The amount we know about the Prophet ﷺ, we only have limited details about the other Prophets. For example, Isa ﷺ, we know he didn't get married. There is a small group actually. There is a small minority of Christians that actually believe Jesus got married. And Dan Brown, they believe that he's got a descendant. Our belief is that he will get married after he comes. But he, he wasn't married then when he was raised to the heavens. Alayhi salatu wasalam. The other thing is that we only know about when you look at Jesus, peace be upon him, who seems to have the greatest following, we only know about his birth, miraculous birth. Then he disappears from the Bible and from the Quran. There's no mention. Suddenly he reappears when he's 30 to 33. And there's about 40 to 50 year, days of his life that you can gather together. That's it. If that's the only information that you can get, that's not enough for us to go by. Whereas with the Prophet ﷺ, you know it most of his history. 
This isn't to denigrate any of the prophets. This is just to show that if you want to follow somebody with a proper role model, then it's the Prophet only, and that's why we say Islam. So let me just read this to you. This is actually from Sayyid Sulaiman Nadwi, right? Actually, part of it is I added some of the others. If you're a husband, then look at the husband of Khadija and Aisha. If you're a wife, then let her look at the wives of Muhammad for guidance. If you're a father, look at the father of Fatima and Qasim. If you're a grandfather, look at the grandfather of Hassan and Hussein. If you're an orphan, then let him look at the beloved child of Abdullah and Amina radiallahu anhu. If you're a shepherd, look at the herder who grazed his goats in the valleys of Mecca. If you're an imam, let him look at the leader of the mosque of Medina. If you're a businessman and a trader, let him look at the merchant who traveled to Sham on business, for example. If you're a king, then let him look at the ruler of Arabia. If you're a victor, you've just, mashallah, uh, had victory, let him look at the one who rode humbly into Makkah and forgave its people. If you've just suffered an attack and a setback, then let him look at the one who experienced discomfort at Uhud and Hunayn. If you're a teacher, then let him look at the Ustad of Madrasa to Sufa. That was the Madrasa of the Prophet. It's called Madrasa to Sufa. So you got the Asufa representatives here, right? Um, if one is poor, let him look at he whose family sufficed on dates and water for days on end. Everybody, whoever you are, you've got something. You're just not going to find that in the other prophets. Not because they had shortcomings. It's just we don't have that information about them. Or they didn't live long enough in the world for all of that to be gathered about them. If you're wealthy, well, look at the one who used to give without the fear of poverty. And if you're a judge, then look at the one who entered Masjid al-Haram that one dawn and resolved the dispute regarding who replaced the black stone on the wall of the Kaaba. These are just some examples of what will be provided to you. The Prophet ﷺ basically he provides, Islam provides an idea for anybody, whoever they are. Furthermore, if you're going to objectively compare Islam to the other major religions, you'll find that Islam is the middle path between the strictures of Judaism and the relative laxity of Christianity. For example, Christians, they don't have any dietary laws. In the third century, they agreed to basically cancel out all diet. There's no halal haram. It's just healthy, whatever you want to eat. Even though the Bible talks about the unlawfulness of swine. If you look at the Jewish religion, I've spent a few days with, uh, at Windsor Castle with seven Jews, uh, seven Christians and seven Muslims. It's much more difficult. You think HMC is difficult? They are much more difficult. They can't even eat vegetables that are non-kosherly prepared. Because you could have small bugs in there. Most, you know, they, they have to have especially cleaned. Any pre-packaged has to have double packaging. You can't have meat and milk together. So if you've had tea for breakfast with chai, right, proper chai, then you can't have meat with it. How many hours? One fatwa is eight hours. The other one is, which is more, I think the Stamford Hill Jewish fatwa from our local Orthodox, they're like ultra Salafis, ultra Orthodox, right? They're eight hours, right? The other guys say four hours. So there's, they have that. They're very, it's very, very tough. So you've got that and you've got Christians. You've got Islam in the middle. And we think it's difficult, but it's, it's nothing compared to that. We have to be careful with the popular religion that you just provide the feel-good factor. But there's no comprehensive, cohesive, universal system for them to provide for every aspect of, la, of life that will be shared by its followers. And today this is coming to the fore. Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher Hitchens. 
Christopher Hitchens is one of the main four uh, atheists who've caused a lot of damage. His brother's a very strong Christian. He's a journalist. Just a few months ago, there's a talk he's done in which he's saying that in Europe, they've taken out religion. Religion has been driven out of all public spaces, schools, workplaces, media, and so on. If religion is in the media, it's basically critical of religion. So he said, what's going to happen now is that people are getting tired now of capitalism, consumerism. Basically just ability to buy, buy, buy. They're going to now want to look for something. But Christianity is being driven out and Islam is going to be there waiting for them. He says that. The other reason is that Christianity, that which even remains, has become a feel-good factor religion because all of the difficulties has been removed. In order to attract more people, they've said, okay, you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. You know, these progressive fatwas. So it's a feel-good factor. Why do people need that? you got Netflix, why do you need to go to church for? Do you see what I'm saying? So they say that, and that's why somebody else I just heard recently, they're saying that, you know, because Christianity has changed a lot to include more people, to be more inclusive. It's actually driven people, it's actually dwindled their numbers. That's why a lot of churches are now just focusing on relief work. Because people just want that humanitarian aspect. That's what they're coming for. They don't want to come for worship. And Sunday worship now, all you have is a few old guys. They're going to die out. There's nobody else coming. And he says that, then he sounds a warning. He says, the Muslims should beware as well because they've got those same challenges of people trying to take out, chip away and cut away. So I tell people who have that, like, you know, just make a new religion. There's no point trying to have Islam like that. Um, another thing about Islam is that despite this is a very common question that's why I'm belaboring the point here despite our differences Muslims have differences but any Muslim when you find them on the street and you say Assalamu Alaikum what happens there is suddenly this warmth there is a sense of security it means you can't doesn't mean you can trust every Muslim but there's a sense of security right there's a sense of brotherhood. You don't find that in any other religion. A Christian finds another Christian somewhere else. Unless you're from denomination maybe, but a general Christian. No. When we see a Muslim, and especially where there's no Muslims, you go to Peru and you see another Muslim. Salaam alaikum, mashallah. You know what I'm saying? Where does that come from? Another thing is, our Prophet wasallam, if he gets abused, then... That riles up Muslims everywhere, whether they're practicing or not. You see people you would consider not practicing in front of the rawdah of the Prophet and they're crying like, you know. Where does that emotion come from? How do you get such a thread running through so many people of varying ethnicities and nationalities unless it's the thread of faith? Okay, um, some more questions that we do and then we'll just open it up. Why are the majority of the world non-believers then? Let's answer that question. I'm gonna, now I'm going to give it over to you because we've already read how to answer questions. Somebody asked you that question. Why are the majority of world non-believers? Good, who says that's the case? What else? Hmm? We already said it before, so I guess. But that's, that's the answer. Why are you assuming they're non-believers? 
Can you see how the, then you'll start thinking, oh, maybe people just don't believe in the, 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 the. But they are actually believers, at least in a God, whatever they call that God. Why the need for God when you have science? So science can't answer every question, right? You tell that to a scientist and he'll... The way to understand, or any other questions, any other answers, sorry, to why need God when we have science? MashaAllah, that's, that, that's another more accurate answer. Some more. Well, science doesn't deal with morality. How about that? Yeah. MashaAllah, that's exactly what it is. Science only gives access to the empirical that you can observe and feel and so on. God is beyond science. Science is restricted dealing with only a certain number of areas. And this is not to denigrate science. This is what science is. Science does not answer ethical questions, for example. It's not within the scope of science to explain ethics, morality. It only gives access to the empirical. For example, we can't, you know, somebody's trying to do number crunching. What software are you going to use? Excel. Now you take Microsoft Word and you, you draw a table and you start doing that. It's like, this is a bad program. You say, you know, you can't even do plus. It's, it's not made for that. Excel is made for that. You want to write a story, a book, and you start taking Excel, and you start, man, what's wrong with this cell? It's just, it, it can't grow anymore, right? My words are all getting scattered up. It's, it's the wrong thing. It's a wrong tool for that. Science can tell us the process of something, but it can't tell us the value in things. Science does not define morality for us, for example. We as Muslims, above all though, remember this question would never have been a question. Do you know that? It's only become a question because the Christianity, Christianity had a problem with science. Scientists were persecuted in the name of Christianity. Muslims have never had a problem with it, with pure science. Because it doesn't deal with the metaphysical, that which is beyond the natural world. Metaphysical beyond the natural world. We as Muslims just don't have a problem with it because we don't find science to be against Islam. But we do accept that science has limits. For example, uh, science can't explain many aspects of the universe. No, it can explain many aspects of the universe, but it cannot explain why the universe existed in the first place. They can tell you the processes which took place, so the Big Bang, maybe beyond, be, be, beyond that, there's theories as well, but why that happened is not a question that science explains. And so then, why does this question appear? It's because... Science, mashallah, what it did was that it opened up and it gave details of things that had never been known before. So it's like, you know, when you find a great thing, you think it answers every question for you. Because it suffice, it, it, it basically was sufficient for something. People just took it overboard and said that it can answer everything. They've taken science beyond and... After, uh, after it demonstrated its ability to answer certain questions, they just thought it could do everything. And then they thought there was no need for the God. For a lot of Christians, when they go into a laboratory, they have cognitive dissonance. 
that we're supposed to leave religion at the door. For Muslims, we just don't have that problem. We don't have to leave our religion at the door. For us, it's completely fine to engage with science. However, the problem is that secularism, humanism, is what forces you to prioritize and science and suppress the religious dimension of your nature and it wants you to have a secular look only that if you're going to believe in God it's a cop out it's become the trend that if you believe in God and you bring the, in God into the picture that's a lazy way of thinking about things it's too lazy to answer things by saying God did it you have to work hard to find out the other reasons behind it You have to understand Islam is totalizing which means that it totalizing just means that it affects everything in our life whether we do science or not they actually did a study I think it was in Yale or Princeton one of those two universities about the representation of atheists and people of belief within the scientific community they did two by the end of the second one they discovered that it's the same proportion of people outside People outside, if there's this proportion are atheists, I can't remember what the exact proportion was, and this proportion are believers, it's the exact thing in science. Science doesn't make you more of a kafir. Do you understand? It just, it's who you are. So the problem is, well, let's deal with the same que uh, next question, which is, uh, why should we believe in God when scientists don't? What a question. Like, why should we believe when scientists don't? What, what does that assume? That scientists are like the most enlightened people on the earth, right? And they may be very good at science. When they go home and they talk with people, they probably don't know what to do. That, that's the crazy part. Because that doesn't make you a human being. It doesn't make you a better human being. You're very good in your laboratory. You write very well. But when you go outside, you don't know how to deal with people. Not all scientists are like that, I'm saying. This is just obviously some. Firstly... The answer to that is truth is not based on how many people believe or a certain category believing. That's not how truth is determined. We've seen in many things, I mean, look at Brexit issue. Just because you believe, most people believe in something doesn't make it the reality. The assumption that most scientists don't believe in God is also not an accepted reality anyway. I've just shown you the statistic. Well, I've mentioned it. And... Uh, so I guess the next thing is that why does God demand absurdities and irrationalities? How do you answer that one? Who said so? Exactly, who said so? What else? Get, get me in who said so is like a Bradford answer, like who said so? Right, you know, like that's, or shall we say Coventry Road answer, or I don't know, you know, like who said so? Like you, you, I beat you up, you know? Give me a better answer than that. That's, that is the right answer, but give me a better, yeah. Give an example. Something more specific, yes. Okay. We're, we're talking about absurdities and irrationalities, so let's keep it focused on that. Something more basic, more fundamental. Define absurdity and irrationality for me first. Like I said, define to me what's weird. Remember in the example I gave, like define to me what is weird. Or what's the problem with that weird? 
very subjective, exactly. It's very subjective, like define to me what is absurdity to you first. Let's come to that definition first. Then we can see whether God demands absurdities or not. So I said, break the question down. Go to the individual. You're going to have to go to words and see what they mean. So why does God demand absurdity? What is an absurdity to you? Where do you get that definition from? Why is that the correct definition? Who provides the correct definition? What's an irrationality to you? Why is it irrational? Who determines that absurdity? And that, we'll have a good discussion there. Right? Okay. Um, we're not going to go through these because then we'll have no time for anything else. The ontological, teleological, you can find these there in your... But basically, I mean, they, they're quite a simple... The ontological, I'm going to ignore that because that one's the, probably the more complex one. Alright? Because the whole idea of ontology confuses a lot of people. Basically, the study of being. And at this point, at, by this hour of night, I think it's probably not the right time. Those who understand, alhamdulillah, that's fine. Uh, the teleological argument is a much easier one to deal with. Right? For example, right? We observe regularity in nature. Isn't there regularity in nature? Things happen, it can be predicted. Earth rotation always produces night and day, the seasons. You know, we've never had no day or no night, unless it's known that you're not going to have a day or night. So if you go to the north of Norway, for six months, there will be no night. So I've been there at 12 o'clock at night, and the sun basically was this much above the horizon. I tried to pray Isha, and I had to rethink my niya so many times because we were praying outside and it was really strange to pray Isha in in a kind of a dusky daylight it was quite interesting and six months is dark the sun doesn't rise so we know that anyway it's known but in England sun doesn't rise one day well it rises you just can't see it sometimes um, we observe regularity so we observe that Nature, then nature, the natural world, thus exhibits, a, uh, thus exhibits a great deal of order. There's a lot of order in our nature. Right. Order, where does order come from? Take examples of what you understand in order, a computer working. Right? It comes from an intelligent agency. An agent that's intelligent, a producer, a designer who's intelligent. So, the universe has to be the result of an intelligent agent who is basically God. That's why you can't prove Allah through these. You can prove God through these. And we define God as our Allah. Do you understand? Because for us, Allah is not just the creator. He's a lot more than that. I hope you understand what I'm saying in terms of that. Next argument. The teleological argument. There's, two te there's many teleological arguments. I gave you one from order of things. And this one is from analogy. We observe that the parts of an object work with precision and regularity. So for example, this watch of mine, which is a citizen watch I've had for about 10 years or more. right? It's, mashallah, very regular. As long as it, as long as it gets its feed of the sunlight every once in a while, it works. Clockwork. It didn't just come to be, did it? It was created by something. The universe as a whole resembles a massive machine like a clock with that regularity. Machines like a clock have a designer. So then why not the universal 
also have a designer? Why doesn't the whole universe also have a designer? These are very simple arguments. You'd think that somebody would believe these, right? Why do you think people won't believe that? Don't they seem very convincing? So why do you think people won't believe that? Yeah, that's in some cases there are examples they say it doesn't really fit here, right? Because it depends on how you look at it. But the main other reason is that still don't want to. So then they find those examples, right? For us, it just reinforces. That's why I'm saying that you need afaman sharah Allahu sadrahu lil Islam. None of these arguments are going to work when inna kala tahdi man ahbabt. But you need to know them at least because they do work in a lot of places. It silences people. The cosmological argument, basically the cosmic system, the universe, whatever begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. Do we agree with that? If you see a bottle of water, you know that this was actually produced by Costco, Kirkland. Right? This is, what is it, Sennheiser or something, German, you know. You look at everything and you know it must be caused by something. The universe also comes into existence. Therefore the universe must have a cause for its existence, okay? The attributes of the cause of the universe being timeless, existing other and so on, other, okay. Now if the universe had a cause, that cause must have come from outside of the universe, which means it's not bound by time or space. It must exist beyond that. The only concept of anything that is like that that anybody has provided is God. Therefore, the cause of the universe must be God. You see what I'm saying? A lot of people would be convinced by that if you present it like that. Not die-hard atheists, they've seen all of this and they've found ways to circumvent them. But a lot of people, the common person could be, you could use this. The moral argument. Every culture throughout history has had some form of law. Otherwise you can't exist because you can't function. Shah Waliullah discusses in Hujjatullah al-Bariqah that it's a natural need for have some law and order. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. It could be different though. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Even criminals do. Though their concept of right and wrong is different. Their criminals like, rich people shouldn't have the money. So I'm allowed to steal from them. For them, right and wrong. Murder, lying, stealing and immorality are almost universally rejected. Murder, lying, stealing and immorality. You might say, no, there's some people who agree with murder. Only agree with murder of those they think is justified to kill. And everybody thinks that there are certain people that are justified to be killed. Unless they've just bought into this whole thing that there can't be any capital punishment. Right? So where did this sense of right and wrong come from if it is not from God? Who else is there that provides that kind of idea? It's only God that people are claiming to do so, so why not? That's why you know, these arguments they will work for some people, maybe not for others, because they're not absolute always. Okay. This is... Uh, let me do this one and then I'll take your question. So, why is there evil in the world and suffering in the world? That's the most important one, I think. Then we'll open it up to questions. Maybe for that, yeah. Yeah, for that. Yeah, you can do that. Okay. Let's... This question of... Uh, 
you know, because we have had less time, uh, we are going to just, well, I guess this is all we have time for. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? This is what puts a lot of people off. And it confuses a lot of people. Why does it confuse a lot of people, you think? What's the problem with suffering? Why do they get confused? They say that if your concept of God is that He's a merciful God, why does He allow suffering and pain? That's the biggest question. How do you answer that question? Too shallow a way to look at it. You'll have to give them more meat for that man. Right? Yes. Okay, that, that, that's in the right direction. Okay, so the reason for suffering is a test in China. Okay, that's another answer. Yes. That's a good point. Well, if there was no suffering, how would there be happiness? Everybody would be default happy, sad, what? All the same. Huh? To learn from your suffering. Absolutely, yes. MashaAllah, there you go. That's the fundamental answer I was looking for. This question is a straw man, it's a straw man argument. It comes from a Christian perspective, not from a Muslim perspective. Reason is that it's the Christians who believe that, well, they, they, they have this idea that God is just merciful and He's loving. That's a major theme and nothing else. It's a big idea. So, in the West, the West was a Christian continent. Until about a hundred years ago or so, they did too much persecution. Finally, secularism took over. A lot of the arguments against religion is based on arguments against Christianity. We as Muslims, we don't differentiate between that too much. So on this question and the evolution question, for example, we then take the Christian answer. So the Christian answer about evolution, for example, is that there is no such thing, there is no such thing as evolution. I'm not going to deal with evolution today because I'm not a specialist in that or in any of this at all for that matter. But there's no time for it. But mashallah, we have two wonderful uh, recordings on zamzamacademy.com one from Mufti Zamil Sahib, Mufti Zamil Rahman and the other one from this uh, Maulana Usman Ali who's doing his PhD in biology they've detailed this idea of evolution what you can agree and what you can't agree with Muslims have a much more nuanced understanding of evolution because there are certain aspects of evolution that can't be denied but when it comes to Adam Islam in particular and some other aspects there's no compromise on that we can't take the prevalent theory. It's a theory. And I'll tell you something. I read this book to understand science. I read this book and I would suggest the ulama at least read that. Because it gives you a sufficient knowledge of science. Not knowledge. Sufficient familiarity with some of uh, the ideas. Otherwise, you can't learn science just by reading one book. But it's called It's Not Rocket Science by Ben Miller. A wonderful book. He's written it really wonderfully. That it makes it, he goes through everything from astronomy, wonderful astronomy, genetics. Food science was really useful. So I'm a critique of food. I don't cook much. But I can tell you that if you're baking a cake, then you better use the right tin size. Because if you use 
too wide a pan, bigger than the size recommended, it's going to be too flat, so you won't rise. And if it's too small a tin, then it's going to buckle under its own pressure. That's why you're not going to get good cake. Right? And so he describes all the reasons for why things, uh, things happen in food. I love the entire book, except the evolution. And mashallah, Mufti Zabil and that they've actually shown the inaccuracies, misrepresentations, and complete. There are certain pictures that are used in evolution to show that look how it was before and look how it is now, and they're doctored pictures. They've been discredited, but they're still used in textbooks of high schools and colleges. And nobody knows. You're just reading into them and you don't know. But because your professor is telling you, and because there seems to be this so called consensus, and they bully people like that, you, you can't argue against it. So this is what this Ben Miller, who I really admire his writing, when he came to evolution, okay, he acknowledged that th this is a theory, and it's not a fact, it can't be proven, because when you're looking at so many thousands of years, you can't prove that. But he says that because everybody agrees with it, it'd be foolish to disagree with it. And I thought, this is where you've lost me. You're not being scientific here. You're doing taqlid here. Of, other, of the evolution theory. Evolution is a massive area that is so problematic, it's become like the defining factor for a lot of people. And it almost looks like, and I can draw parallels of this issue, that once you become so embedded about a certain thing, even though you see the truth afterwards, it, you can't change afterwards. Very difficult. Even though slowly, slowly it's being chipped away at. But I would suggest that for evolution, don't ask me the question, listen to those two talks on there. Because the mashallah, they're quite satisfying. Uh, just search for evolution on, on zamzamakan.com, Mufti Zamil's talks and uh, Mona Usman Ali's talks. They're very good in that sense. So, the other thing I was talking about is the suffering one. Is Christianity who have this problem? Because they believe God merciful and so on. Our God is also, uh, i give you the few things. Firstly, what is wrong with suffering? Why are you making it such a big deal? What is wrong with suffering? That's the first answer. Why assume that suffering is a bad thing? Uh, have you had exams lately? Don't you have to suffer? Right? Um, if you remove suffering from the human experience, then you're going to have to take out complete emotion and free will. It's because of free will that you have to have the ability to cause suffering. Because of the, the ability to move somewhere, I may topple something over. I may cause damage to somebody. If I'm married, if I'm uh, your business partner, and then we notice that we can't really work together, then I may dissolve the business. It may cause you suffering. Husband and wife, the wife may not like the husband, husband may not like the wife, may divorce her, it might cause suffering. But free will, shouldn't you be allowed to cause suffering? So who said suffering is a bad thing? It's part of happiness. You cannot, sorry, it's part of the innate nature of this world. You cannot then have happiness if you don't have suffering. Because it's a contrasting idea. Everybody would just be kind of some automatons. So, oh, you've got the answers there. Suffering is very much part and purpose of the intrinsic nature of this world. Now, this, that, that doesn't mean 
that we exist to suffer. You have to remember that. Doesn't mean that you must flagellate yourself and you must cause suffering because that's been prohibited now, Sharia. When the Prophet saw somebody standing up to worship, hanging himself, uh, suspending himself, he said, Why are you doing that for? But if you have to do wudu in cold water in the morning or ghusl, then you better undertake that suffering. But don't do it for no reason, unless you're doing it for a therapeutic purpose or a self disciplining purpose. But otherwise, you don't get more reward of doing ghusl in cold water than in warm water, unless it's for another outside reason. So we don't exist to suffer, but it's a necessary consequence of free will. If you have free will, you're going to cause suffering. There will be people who will suffer as God allows people to perpetrate certain actions against others, but obviously only within a limited scope. Okay, that is the first answer to just show it's not illogical. Now we're going to go into a theodical answer, theodicy, which is to justify why suffering is not a bad thing. There's two levels of these answers. Why isn't suffering a bad thing? Suffering increases our spirituality. It helps us to control our ego. If everything's going right for me, I suddenly get arrogant. If I then get some kind of suffering, it kind of calms me down that I'm not, I am vulnerable. I'm not as powerful as I think I am. It is only through a lot of strenuous exercise and effort does a person attain optimal physical peak. That's suffering. There's a good benefit to it. You want to become fit, you better suffer. If you want to do good business, you better spend night and day. If you want to be a good student, you better do the same. Right? Um, suffering serves to make us better people. Don't they? Because if you, don't, if you suffer, and somebody else, is, I tell you something, when I used to hear about cancer, that somebody's got cancer, I never thought, I, I thought big deal, they got cancer, it's another sickness. When my mother suffered from cancer for 10 years, rahimahullah, that's when I understood what it was. Those, those chemotherapy sessions and, the, and, and the, the pain, that's when I stand. Now when I hear somebody's got suffer, uh, uh, um, cancer, I was like, that must be serious. I make more dua for them, I feel more for them, I have more empathy. I mean, that's for people like me who have no empathy. Some people have natural empathy, so you may not do as much for them. So through patience, we become more enduring because we have sabr. We have two concepts to deal with suffering. Sabr, patience. And number two, rada bil qada, To be satisfied with Allah's decree. At least in the Muslim worldview, suffering has a very important position. People who suffer unnecessarily, there's a recompense. A thorn pricks you, your promised a sadaqah, your promised reward. If you've made to undergo something that you did not cause, you're promised a reward. Restitution, reconciliation, on the day of judgment you'll be rewarded. Imagine if you didn't have this concept of restitution and you were aggressed against and you had all the doors closed in front of you, nobody there to support you, everything was against you. You are helpless, despondent. If you don't have belief in the hereafter, how would you survive? At least with this you think, okay, if it doesn't happen in this world, I know Allah will give me justice. If not in this world, then definitely in the hereafter. And the hereafter is my real life. Suffering is only a big deal because we think this life is the main life. For a Muslim though, the hereafter is the main life. So it doesn't, these things are arbitrary that happen in this life. 
You know, a lot of our questions can actually be answered by focusing on the hereafter. I forgot to mention that dimension before. So let's take this. An atheist is telling you that suffering, that so and so. Okay, you as an atheist, I'm going to say, what is you, suffering in your worldview? Why, what do you get out of suffering? Dawkins said that we basically, there's no such concept of free will. We're dancing to our DNA. Can you imagine that? There's no free will. We're dancing to our DNA. Why does he reduce it to DNA? Why does he want to make DNA that, our puppeteer? Why doesn't he make it God? DNA came from somewhere. Where did he come from? So why are they putting all these intermediaries and blocking God? It's not a livable idea, is it? So anyway, you as an atheist, what's your view? Your aunt that suffered for 10 years from cancer and then died from it, what did she get from that in your worldview? She died for nothing. I know that when my mother died, I believe she's shaheed. So I can feel good. She did seven Quran khatams. She died at Hajj just before Hajj. In that Ramadan, she did seven Quran khatams. It was only after that they figured out that the chemotherapy is not working. And then after that, I think she just lost her struggle. Right? That was her time. But I'm happy now that at least she died as a shaheed. Because Al-Mabtunu Shaheed, for example. Uh, our teacher, Mona, uh, we need to translate his book. Mona Hashim, sir. He's got 70 categories of shaheed is shown. Shaheeds of the hereafter. If you die, pregnant woman dies. If you die in a fire. If you die in the various different causes, you die as a shaheed. Okay, so it's a feel-good factor. So they're going to say to you, oh, that's just a feel-good factor. This is the argument they use now. That's a feel-good factor. So what's your answer to that? Hmm? Exactly. So what if it is? I'd rather have a feel-good factor than no feel-good factor. I'd rather, because humans, that's how they survive. That's how they sustain themselves. They think of good things. They think of positive. This is the way to survive in this world. Otherwise, your life will be a wreck. Right? I, I, I don't understand. Like, why do people deny the hereafter? Why do they want to restrict their existence to this world? Are they crazy? Like, why would you want to restrict your existence to this world? Why not allow for a hereafter? Even if you don't like prepare for it at least like okay it could be there like why deny it it just doesn't make any sense I'd rather have more life than less life but anyway I think that's uh, th that was basically the short answer um, in our controversial main course we we spent a good hour on that but this is basically the short 16 points on suffering and hopefully that suffices I think we're gonna have to stop here um, because we can't go through any of the other questions what I'm going to do is, I'll take your questions, but mashallah, there's this uh, collection that somebody gave me of questions from 10-year-olds. Alright? And I want you to reflect over these questions, because what that's going to show you is, uh, I want you to reflect and contrast these questions to what we've just studied. These are from 10-year-olds. Why are people suffering in hell if Allah is most forgiving and merciful? Now let's answer that question. That that's, comes in the longer answer to suffering, but, but uh, let's answer that question, because I think it's relevant. Why, if God is so merciful, why does He allow people to suffer? Come on, you know the answer to that one now. Just as Allah is merciful, are you forgetting that He's also mighty? He's also the, to one who, uh, the avenger? 
He's also the powerful one. He's also the punisher. He's also the one from whom comes harm. It's a demonstration of that aspect. So you know, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, James Welby, and the previous one, I forget his name. Oh, I've observed this in the last... He came to CMC. What's his name? Rowan, Rowan, Rowan Atkins. Rowan, Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams. All right? Rowan Williams. So... Who's Rowan Atkins, by the way? Mr. Bean, British, right? Okay, Rowan Williams. When the tsunami took place, you know, in Indonesia and so on, Rowan Williams said, my faith shook. Currently, two or three years ago, and I've actually tweeted this, there was another catastrophe that took place. James Welby said, my faith shook. My faith didn't shake. Not because I don't have mercy for anybody, but my faith did not shake. How can you, as the head of the church, what kind of faith do you have that it shakes? Unless you're taking that metaphorically. How can you have a faith that shakes? Because your concept of God is mercy, mercy, mercy and nothing else. Islam's God is mercy, mercy. Rahmati sabaqad ghadabi. Has anybody done the calculation of how many times we read Rahman, Rahim every day or as good Muslims are supposed to do in Salat? Has anybody done that calculation? In every rak'at we read Alhamdulillah, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. So we have mercy, but we also have the other characteristics. So for us, our faith includes this comprehensive God figure that has demonstrations, manifestations of various different names in different places. And then the tsunami, for example, simple answer. For those people who are miserable then, it's better for them to have gone from this world as a shaheed, for example, if they're in Indonesia, for example, and hopefully their, their, their suffering has been relieved. If they were evil people, then this is a punishment for them. So you've got a two-pronged, multi-pronged approach, even a single catastrophe. For some people, it acts as a mercy. Some people, it's a source of um, uh, punishment. And for others, it's to give patience to their family members and for multiple other causes and reasons which we don't have the time to go into right now. So why people are left in hellfire is because Allah does... Allah created this world for a test. He wanted to send people to paradise. He created the world as a test. He, goes, I'm, he says, I'm only going to send those who are entitled. And I want you to be entitled. I'm going to help you. I'm going to guide you. And I'm going to inspire you. But unfortunately, not everybody that goes to school wants to work hard and succeed. Right? Not everybody wants to do that. So nobody establishes a university or a college or a madrasa that I want to fail everybody, that's why I'm doing it. I love to see people fail. They do it generally because they want people to succeed. But people don't. So then you're going to ask the question, why didn't God make everybody succeed? Why didn't God make everybody succeed? Well then he wouldn't have made this test then. Then he would have just put you directly in paradise. You see what I'm saying? If you're going to start that line of questioning, then you just have to deconstruct the whole thing. But we have to work with the reality of what we do have. We have a world, and there's good and there's evil here. So let's work with what we have. Don't come up with hypotheticals because they're not reality. So Allah is just. Nobody is going to go to hellfire. So many verses that your God does not oppress anybody. Nobody's going to go to hellfire thinking they're being oppressed. As they do in this world. A lot of people are put in prison. They know they've been oppressed. But in the hereafter, no. So then God will say, well, why didn't they put them in hellfire and put others in paradise? The question then is that, 
those who go to hell, they'll say, well, what's the proof that I would have done wrong? God wants to manifest that. He wants to give you the chance. This does create a lot of questions about the whole taqdeer aspect. And that's something that would take me exactly one hour and 15 minutes to explain. Because I've done it a few times before. Right? So I'm not going to explain it. And I don't have any slides for it. But go to zamzamacademy.com and I really suggest this one at least. It's called Don't Be Depressed. You Don't Know Your Future. I did quite a bit of research and I did that lecture because this was a question that so many people were confused about. Hopefully there's some satisfaction in there. Can't answer everything, but hopefully it's enough. Don't be depressed, you don't know your future. Because everything that's written is not written prescriptively in the divine tablet. You have to remember that. A lot of people, these are the questions, I might as well read them to you. What was there before Allah? That's another question. What was there before Allah? How do you answer that question? This is a 10-year-old asking. Molana, answer him, man. Come on. Huh? There was nothing. There is, you have to say that Allah was always there. Allah has always been there. And then if you want, you can explain that neighbor story of the pushing the car. That Allah had to exist first for there to be anything else. Right? Um, so there's no concept that God wasn't there and there was nobody, there was something there before him. Obviously, that's just the question in disguise of who created Allah. It's just another way of asking it. When you pass away, does Allah judge you or do we have to wait for judgment day? It's not mutually exclusive question. It's just like, yes, he does judge you and you'll have to wait. Some people wait in the lounge, the gold standard lounge which is the throne of Allah and others will have to wait in the heat and uh, then there'll be judgment day so you can explain that hadith I think that's quite a simple one and uh, why did Allah create evil if he wants us to believe in him are they, those even connected think of that question why did God create evil if he wants us to believe in him what is going on in the mind that's asking this Ahmad explain why did Allah create evil if he wants us to believe in him? What is going on in the mind of this child? Exactly that. If there's evil, they can't be God. Right? So, but then he's believing that God must have created evil. And evil is what stops people from believing in God. Where did he get that idea from? So I think you're going to have to really unpack it and really explain things bit by bit. That look, the reason for evil, as I've just mentioned, is that it's a necessary consequence of allowing us to do what we want. Free will. That's why evil happens. But not everything that's evil is actually evil. It looks evil first. But then after that, it works out that it was actually beneficial. Right? Because sometimes a person may trip and not able to go. And then they find that if they'd gone, they would have died because there was a major catastrophe there. So you can give examples like that, inshallah. Why did we have to live this life if Allah already knew what we were going to do? So that's the taqdeer question. Because Allah doesn't incriminate anybody without proof. So He lets us live, He gives us an option. We choose the bad option, He punishes. If we choose a good option, it's good. But you know the taqdeer issue, just to give it to you in brief. The main question that arises is because God has written everything in this divine tablet. So if everything is written, then why bother trying? Because if it's all written, then it's going to happen like that, isn't it? So the reason that this is confusing is because they think that what's written 
is prescriptively written. It's ordering things to happen. And as Imam Abu Hanifa makes it very clear that what's written is written descriptively, not prescriptively. Meaning, it's written, what's your name, Khurram. It's written that Khurram will come to this class on this day with your free will, right? That's what was written there. Why, why did Allah write that? Because He knew that Khurram was going to come with His free will here. Allah has knowledge, foreknowledge of everything. Remember, ilm. He knew you were going to come here. He knew I was going to come here. So He wrote that down. And then we come with our free will. Did you be for, were you forced to come? Sure. Okay. That force would be different anyway, because at the end of the day, you still came, right? It's not like I didn't want to come, but something just made my legs walk. It was, it's not like that. So Allah knew what you were going to do with your free will, so He wrote all of that down. So what we do goes in accordance to what is written, not because we're forced to do that because it's written, but because Allah knew what we were going to do, so He had it written down. Just like I, if you're a teacher, by the end of the year, before the exams, you're going to get a good idea of what your students are expected to get. You may get something wrong, but most should be right, your predictions. But Allah knows absolutely, because time doesn't apply to Him. He sees everything before it occurs. How? Allah knows best. I can't explain that. That's the crux of the divine, uh, of the taqdeer issue. But listen to that lecture, inshallah. If Allah knows what people are going to do, why does He still punish us? I explained that. And uh, okay, now you can bring your questions. Why do so many people who do really good in Islam have an unlucky life? Who made Allah? Okay, who made Allah? We've dealt with one. But how many uh, people who have an unlucky life? They do so much good, they have an unlucky life. Generally, the way I've seen that question, I've got some friends, and it looks like all the trouble comes to them. Right? They have accidents. They lose children. And you know what the most amazing thing is? That they have sabr. I think I would not have sabr if that happened to me. So why does make Allah make them suffer? So now there are a few ways. If you're suffering, a calamity reaches you. And it makes you repent. Then that calamity is a mercy for you. Alright? That calamity is a mercy. Actually, I, let me get this right. I tweeted this a few days ago. Right, because it was really encapsulated the various possibilities. So let me just find it. Right, because I can't remember it all now. At this late at night. MashaAllah, you guys are mashallah, very patient. And mashallah, still sitting here. And uh, um, may Allah reward you for that. And give you more himma and strength. I hope it's the same on the sister's side. It may be beyond your visa hours for some of you sisters, but uh, um, okay, here you go. How do you interpret suffering? The answer lies in the response. It's how you respond. If, com if you're complaining and impatient, then consider that suffering to be punishment. It's suffering and you're not patient, you're angry and you're thrashing around and complaining and everything, then that's a punishment. If it hits home and provides realization of your shortcomings, and then it forces you to do sincere repentance, then it is to purify your sins. Allah wants you to purify your sins because He wants you to bring closer. Number three, if when you 
become, uh, suffer a calamity or get some suffering and trouble, you become patient and you actually increase in your gratitude to Allah. So you're doing sabr and rada bil qada, satisfaction with the decree of Allah, then this is to raise your ranks. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So that a lot of people are confused. How, they, I've had this question so many times. How do we interpret suffering? How do, what does it do to me? So now remember this. Um, why do unbelievers stay in hell for eternity? Eternity is a long time. If God loves uh, us three times more than your mother. No, it's, I think it's much more than that. It's like only 1% of his mercy is distributed among all the merciful people in the world. So that's like... 99 to the power of I don't know how do you say that right um, then surely as a loving God he would not want to see his creation burn forever a disbeliever dies one year after maturity then surely it is not fair for this person to burn for all of eternity there's a few answers to this and that's part of the longer answers we go through some of them inshallah but let me give you a choice how, uh, give you a chance how do you answer that yes Right, that's a good one, which is that uh, Allah knew what you were going to do. You had an option, you, you, didn't change, you, you didn't use the option of becoming a good person, you stayed a uh, disbeliever. So that's why uh, Allah knows that you would have carried on like that. Okay, that's one answer. Any other answers? Okay, going into quantification, uh, quali qu qualitative. Um, assessment, which is that <clears throat> the punishment, you, you're looking at it quantitatively. This question is looking at quantity, which means that you're looking at quantity one year, two years, ten years, fifty years, maybe a hundred years. Why eternity in hellfire? Like it should only be ten years in hellfire, or fifty, or hundred. So don't look at it quantitatively, look at it qualitatively. It is such a big sin, it is such a big violation. A blasphemy, disrespect, ingratitude, that that is the punishment for it. It is such a shirk, dhulmun azim. It's the worst thing you can do to the one who created you that you did not recognize him properly and you impartnered or you disobeyed or dis sorry, not disobeyed, you, you basically impartnered and imposed others on him and basically rejected him. So the grave sin, that's a very good answer. A third answer is that, which is similar really, is that God is not punishing you for the number of years or whatever. He's punishing you for your state. And your state is of kufr or shirk. That's who you are. That's what you've become. So for example, Shawaliullah explains this. He says that, look, you got one person in winter time. He didn't say this. I'm giving the example. I'm fitting the example to our time. He leaves work after Asr. He doesn't pray Asr there because he generally makes it home. But today it was massive traffic. He's on his way and he's like, oh no, I'm going to miss my Asr, but I can't even stop anywhere. It's going to be Maghrib time. He's feeling bad all along. He misses Asr, he goes home. He's feeling very bad. You got that guy. You got another guy who's like a munafiq in Medina Munawwara who has to go to the masjid because they all did. Right? Because otherwise you'd be found out. He doesn't want to be there. Right? He just doesn't want to be there, but he was forced to go there because otherwise he'd be found out political reasons, whatever reasons. He's praying. Who's accepted by Allah, who's not? 
Why is the first one accepted and beloved to Allah? And this one is not beloved to Allah? Why? Because of their deed or because of their state? Allah la yanzuru ila suwarikum wa ila but he looks ila qulubikum that's your state of your heart state of the heart of kufr is blasphemy to the biggest degree why are you diminishing that you don't understand the gravity of the sin okay you got any other questions i'm keeping these short because i'm assuming there's other questions okay let's start from the sister's questions How do we respond to the question that Islam is a restrictive religion? Tell me, how do you answer that? Because we're learning how to answer. So how would you answer that? Hmm? How do you define Can you tell me what you're talking about? Remember, all of these big questions like that, what do you call it, with universal ideas, tell them to particularize them. There's one guy who comes to me and he's like, you know, I want to talk to you about minority fiqh. And fiqhul uh, aqalliyat, and I was like, why? Right? It was in Ramadan in Itikaf. So, but you know, this, that, and the other. After two days, I told him, look, just break it down for me. Why do you want to talk about this? He's, then I found out that, mashallah, the masjid, the ulama and everybody, very conservative. He comes from a very uh, liberal background. His family doesn't like him keeping a beard, wearing Islamic clothing. And the ulama in the masjid are telling him that, well, not ulama, but maybe our tabligi brothers are telling him, you must even go to work uh, in, uh, in Islamic clothing. So he's having a massive cultural uh, dissonance in his mind. So he's talking about minority fiqh. I said, why do you have to talk about minority? Just say, this is my dilemma. Can you give me an answer to this? So this is not the same thing, but it's to say that... Um, Sorry, what was the question? What well, Islam is a very so I would first tell him tell me what what is the restriction here? So, I guess please provide the restrictions. Okay, I, I don't should I start like writing a book about this now? Don't waste your breath on it. Always ask them what is the restrictions. Then we can take each restriction. Yes. Why does religion even matter? Right? That's one common question. Why does okay? Tell me, why does religion matter? Even matter? Try. It. Don't don't. I mean, the most you can do is get it wrong. You might as well get it wrong here. Yeah. To what thing? Restrict you. That's a very negative way of starting, isn't it? Gives you a way of life. Okay. A bit more. I, I've got another way I've got a free way of life I've got a liberal way of life Why do I need religion? Right Okay good Take it back to Allah That people have a human inherent You know they call out to God And God gave us a religion That gives you this holistic idea It provides the idea of the hereafter Because if you don't believe in hereafter If you don't believe in religion How are you going to believe in the hereafter? So it gives you the scope of leading your life in a cohesive way. And this way has been, because they think, so what if it does? Right? How do we know it's useful? Well, it's useful because it stood the test of 1400 years maybe. 
So you can use these ideas to explain that. And as I said, there's no perfect answer. Even some of the answers that I've given, some of you sitting here may have had much better answers. Because the best answer is the one that convinces at that time. Like Imam Abu Hanifa's answer. Right? Which was like a really strange way of answering it. So remember that. I don't have the best answers. Nobody has the best answer. It depends on the unique situation. Okay, next one. Uh, unless there's one from here, then we can take one here, one there. It looks like I've covered everything, so nobody's answering any, asking any questions. Yes. What's the extent of? Okay. What's the uh, what's the extent of using intellect in Islam? That's a big subject, but let me just explain to you how our major theological um, groups have explained it. So we have three. We have well, there's many opinions, but let's just say there's three broad opinions. One is um, because if you're saying how much intellect can you use, so the question is, what do you want to use it for? So mainly I think what people are asking is What can we use it to determine what's good and bad Generally this is what I think people are going to say To determine morality as they say Can we use the intellect And how much of the intellect Can we use to determine what's good and bad So one opinion Is that good and bad Is only determined through the intellect Nothing else determines it Akal is what determines good and bad What do you think of that opinion? First question, whose aql are you talking about? You're going to think something else, I might think something else. We're going to have multiple moralities, which is what the postmodern world is all about. We're living in a postmodern world. You have your morality. I shouldn't complain about yours, but you shouldn't complain about mine. You're free to do what you want as long as you don't harm anybody. That is the modern world. That's one opinion. That's the Mu'tazili opinion. It's all based on aql. So then, doesn't Sharia tell us what's good and bad? Yes, it does, they say. That's just clarifying or supporting what the akal comes to term with. It doesn't work. That's an invalid opinion. Now, there's two valid opinions. There's an ikhtilaf between them. And you can choose whichever one of those two, the Ash'aris and Maturidi. So the Ash'aris say, akal doesn't play a role at all. Akal cannot determine any good and bad. So who determines all good and bad? All that which is virtuous and ugly, repugnant, and, and uh, of benefit Allah, Sharia, Quran, Hadith But don't we use intellect? No, it's only through Quran Sunnah there, there is no There is nothing what you call Intrinsically good and bad It's all determined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Aql can't come with, come with that The Maturidis, the Hanafis generally They take a, me, a middle road approach Which is that the aql can determine some good and some bad, but not all good and bad. Do you understand? Some things like lying in general or stealing is understood through the aql even if there was no religion. But other things are only understood through religion and even what your aql understands, it has to be verified by religion. But you can't say that aql can't understand because we know that people who have no religion, they still know lying is wrong, murder is wrong. So how can you say intellect can't assume that? Isn't murder wrong in general? Isn't lying wrong in general? In, lying is not intrinsically wrong by the way. right? It's only because it's harmful that it's generally wrong. Otherwise instances of lying that are not harmful are not wrong.
For example, if somebody was going to murder somebody and you, you saved them and it was oppressive, for you to say and lie in that case would not be wrong. So if lying was intrinsically wrong, it'd be a problem. Right? But murder, stealing is wrong. You might say, but stealing from the rich to give to the poor Robin Hood style, but that's still stealing. That's just perspective. So, um, that, that is the matter which I uh, subscribe to, which is that the akal can tell you, but it has to be confirmed by the sharia, and other things can't be. So you can't rely on akal completely. So that's how far you can use your akal. Use it, and you confirm it. Don't stop using it. Yes? The law of attraction. That's the logical law of uh, attraction, and what's the other law? The four laws. So explain that law of attraction, and then I'll answer that question. No, don't make it up, man. You need to know what it is. But... What do you mean? That's a new. If it does for you, alhamdulillah. No, meaning if it does, basically the brother is asking the law of attraction, which he's defining as if you think strongly of something, you'll, it'll come to you. I think that's more psychology as opposed to theology. That's more like mind over matter. And there's some people who believe if you put mind over something, I believe that from an Islamic perspective, uh, if you have enough trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it will come to you. It can come. With everything else, you can do that. If it does come to you, then it could be coincidental. Will everything come to you? It depends on, was it gonna come to you? Can you ask for the absurd? Can you ask for the impossible? Can you ask for the improbable? Will that come to you? Right? All of these things we'll have to discuss. Right? Which I don't, I haven't, I haven't really explored too much myself, to be honest. Generally, people ask, what are the books that could help you. As I said, for, at least for ulama, you should read this uh, Ben Miller's It's Not Rocket Science because it's really important. Uh, I remember once in Southall Masjid, which has like 3,000 musallis for Jumu'ah, I mentioned, I was talking about spirituality, but then I also mentioned the molecules that are being basically bashed together in the CERN reactor, in the Hadron Collider in Switzerland. Right? And just mentioned that they're trying to look for the particular particle, the boson, right? Uh, because they're trying to find out where everything came from. It's like talking about, you know, where things come from. And these guys come to me after Salah, this is the first time you've heard somebody talking about the spiritual and natural world together. And those people would never listen to anybody. So, science is what makes a big deal for everybody today. So I think ulama need to have at least some working class understanding of, of science, inshallah. In terms of books, this is what I would suggest. There are two books that everybody should read today. Aside from that, Muslim books. One is uh, Saviors of Islamic Spirit. One, the first volume at least. If only that. The first volume, right? Which is, the, it deals with the first six or seven centuries of the Islamic ups and downs. And how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Saviors of Islamic Spirit in English, Tariqi Da'watu Azimat in Urdu, Rijalu Da'wa and something in Arabic. Rijalu Fikri wa Da'wa in Arabic. Uh, but the amazing part of this book is that a lot of depression right now which is leading to apathy and atheism is that what does Islam offer today? Islam is being criticized, condemned, shown as backwards, shown as irrelevant. 
What this book does is that it shows us the ups and downs, how every time it went down, Allah put it back up. It gives a lot of hope. So that's one, Saviors of Islamic Spirit. We don't have any copies today, but you, I'm sure you can get it from bookshops here or Azhar Academy online or whatever. The other one is uh, this Prince Ghazi's book. Um, can you just give me that? Prince Ghazi's book called A Thinking Person's Guide to Islam. Now, I read this whole book before he published it. Everything that I suggested to him to change or whatever, except one or two things which he argued with me about, right? And I, I agreed with him. He changed them. Mufti Taki Sab, he read the whole thing, suggested changes. He took pretty much all of them as well. It's probably one of the most wonderful expressions of, of Islam in the modern world, to understand it. He's actually writing another book where, which we're working on called on A Thinking Person's Guide to Atheism. And uh, before that, A Thinking Person's Guide to Our Times. That's going to be re really relevant. The reason why he's the right person to write about this is because the access that he's had to major world events, because he's the cousin of the king of Jordan, he's a prince. But when you hear prince, you think he's like some kind of playboy prince, you know. This guy is a totally different person. He, I know him very closely. He, well, he's got two PhDs, let's start with that. One from Princeton, one from Azhar. Right? And he's published several dua books. If you just look at that, you'll understand. And the dua that I, I can't reveal to you more than that. Very religious person and mashallah very connected to our ulama has huge respect for Mufti Taqi Usmani and uh, we're working together on a number of projects. But the way he's explained it, like Mufti Taqi said, I don't think there's a better explanation of the way he's, because he's got the Western mind, though he's Arab originally, he speaks English better than Arab, Arabic anyway. Right? So those are the two books I would really suggest, to make sure you take your book before. Um, yes. That's fine, that's fine, yeah. I mean, why restrict slave girls? Like, why are you oppressing the girls for? I mean, slaves in general. And you know what the wonderful things about slavery is? It's, uh, uh, we didn't cover it today because I didn't think it was relevant. But slaves, there was slavery in Islam. Sorry, there was slavery before Islam. It was in the psyche of people, all right? If Islam came and emancipated all slaves, there would have been a massive chaos. I remember once there was a guy who was in prison, and then when he came out, he was a Muslim guy in our community, and I saw him in Juma. I go, oh, Masha. He goes, yeah, I was just re released this morning or something. So I said, let me give you a ride home. On the way, I stopped, stopped over in a supermarket, and he just felt out of place. He goes, no, I can't come inside. I said, like, why not? He says, no, no, I can't come inside the supermarket, because it was just so weird to him. Generally, a lot of people are slaves for generations. Rather, what Islam done is that it said, feed them what you eat. It's mustahab to feed your slaves what you eat. In fact, have them sitting, Shami mentions this, to have them eating with you is mustahab, not necessary. Feed them, uh, clothe them the clothing you have. Don't burden them be beyond their ability. The Prophet got very angry when people struck their slaves. Very angry. So what he said was, uh, and then he said, gave huge excuses to freedom. Virtues, penalties, like if you do, your kafara is freeing a slave. You do this mistake, free a slave. So he encouraged the freeing of slaves. He mentioned virtues for fearing, freeing slaves. You get this virtue if you teach a girl slave and then after that you free her, then you marry her, you get this huge reward and so on and so forth. So it was more about giving them virtues to do so. Then, if you look at historically speaking, 
there's no other community where you actually had slaves that were in high positions. So you had the Seljuks and the others who brought in slaves to work for them. These slaves were very talented individuals. They rose up and ascended to high positions, eventually becoming the rulers themselves. So you had this huge dynasty that ruled many parts of the Muslim world and have left huge amounts of wonderful building work in Egypt. I was amazed. The Sultan Barkuk complex, the Sultan Qalawun complex, Mamluks. They're the Mamluk, Circassian Mamluk dynasty. What does Mamluk mean in Arabic? It means a slave, the owned. There was a dynasty in Islam, a whole ruling dynasty that was slaves. Where else are you going to get that? Right? Um, so that's the basic answer of slaving. Right? I know the first time you hear that you can actually have sexual intercourse with your slave girl, it like comes as a major surprise. Like, how is that possible? Right? But that's what the Quran says, right? There you go. Yes. So the question is, uh, for the benefit of uh, sisters, etc., is that um, why does Allah allow somebody to be possessed, I guess, by jinn or something, and they try to believe, but they can't believe because we're blaming it on this ghoul or this uh, extraterrestrial, whatever it is. So why does Allah allow that to happen? So I guess let's look at it in a broader picture. Somebody gets a pain or an injury and he can't deal with it, so he loses his faith over it because he feels that God has forsaken him. At the end of the day, they're both the same thing, aren't they? Uh, God allowing it, this despondency to come about and thus making the person kafir, whether that's through magic or through another kind of suffering or through an incident or through an accident, it's all the same, isn't it, at the end of the day? They're just different causes. But you've particularly talked about the jinn cause because maybe it's a more active cause, right? But at the end of the day, it's the same cause. Yeah, but even the others wouldn't have any control. You're thinking they're making an active decision. So the question is, uh, no, I see the way you're making the difference, okay. Saying they have no control over it. How can we say they've got no control over it? Hmm. See the thing is that It'd be nice to look at why we're saying They have no control over it Because you and I are not involved in that So I guess we can't really relate That's a very experiential thing What does somebody actually go through What's the experience actually going through Right We, we are interpreting as they have no control But anyway On a meta level all I can say Is that that is what God has written for them And maybe that's because of some sin They may have committed because sometimes we commit something and it actually deprives you of the kalima and we think it's a small issue. For example, uh, ulama have actually singled out several sins, major, muhlikat, which don't seem big for some people. Drinking is one of them. 
A person is still a Muslim, still believes he's a Muslim, but he's drinking. It could deprive you of the kalima. I'm not saying that makes you kafir, but obviously that's quite detrimental. So a lot of the time it could be because they did something, and God knows what they did, and if they did. We're not going to judge that. We're just trying to provide some sanity to that understanding. We're trying to reconcile. We're trying to just uh, get some closure on what that might be. And Allah knows best. But it could be that you do something and because of that, something like this comes about. But let's put it this way. If they, technically speaking, if they matured, possessed, and they had no control over themselves, then maybe they'll be forgiven anyway. Because they're not considered responsible. And maybe if they are possessed, and if they lose faith in that possession, I'll leave that to Allah, but maybe they may not even be responsible for that. Because they're not in sanity making that. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually coming clearer, to be honest. And hopefully that's a bit more satisfying, right? That maybe they have an excuse. And we don't want to judge that. We're going to say, okay, he's a kafir maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if we're going to say a kafir. Do you think we'd say the kafir is somebody crazy that's definitely documented to be... Uh, like one question did come to me. I divorced my wife. And seven amils have told me that I'm possessed. So is it still a divorce? Right? I'll leave that to a panel of muftis. Right? To determine that one. But that's a good question. Yes. Yeah, again, I think, uh, so the question is um, that some people say that all religions have good and bad. Let's just take the good, you know, pick and mix. Let's just take whatever's good. And so, number one, how are you going to determine what's good and bad? What's your criteria for what is good and bad? That means you're leaving it to your intellect, your feelings, your nafs, your desire to determine what's good. Okay, that sounds a bit too complicated. Okay, let me leave that. That seems too difficult, let me leave that. Let me take the easy out of this. It's gonna become a very personalized idea. Religion is supposed to come from our creator, so obviously you're gonna to have to try to impress on them the idea of a creator, and the idea that we have to believe in God. Then I think you can answer this question, that okay, then what is the best manifestation or procedure to believe in that God? Otherwise it's a very arbitrary way, because your religion is gonna be different from mine. How do you sanction such an idea? What's the criteria you're using? Why is that criteria a successful criteria? It may make you feel better, but is feeling better sufficient for this great world and where we are? Is that what makes it uh, justified? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the exact idea that if there was that, that's actually perfect that actually proves the point that even though you disagree with God you still have morality and generally morality is what is provided by God now because they've taken it that doesn't mean that they provided it the moral idea moral code that they're working by is not something new it's not something they invented they've obviously taken it from somewhere because when you see where moral morality comes from it generally comes from exposure to religion 
right? Or it, it comes from an inherent idea of that. What do you mean by moral then? Honestly, like, what do you mean that you're a moral person? Let's judge morality first. Okay, so why don't you do that? It's because you, there's already a precedence that stealing is a bad thing. So how can you say that you made that up yourself? That's an idea that's perennial. It's been over generations that you just took it from them. You just pick and choose. Sorry? Now that's a, maybe we're going on a different direction there, but the idea is that he didn't make up that morality. It's not a new morality created, he just took from somewhere. Prove it. Right, but, yeah. And again, if I don't know that answer, I'm not going to try to be a super Muslim that I must know the answer to everything. That's not my responsibility anyway, if you can't. I'm not saying that's a cop out, but I'm just saying that sometimes you just can't argue. Because they don't want to believe anyway. You know, in uh, Sri Lanka, I had a session like this with, teenage, with young people. And this is one guy who says, my friend has this question. So, series of questions, after, one after the other. And then I finally said, I said, you know what, this is not going to work. If your friend was here, I probably would have convinced him faster than you. The reason is that I held, long, uh, several years ago, I held a, a, a kind of a very simple session like this on common questions for the Muslims, of how, uh, for our local Muslim kind of activists and so on. That was more of a difficult session than in real life with non-Muslims. Do you know why? They were all acting as art skeptics to play the, the devil, as you say. Huh? They were, sorry, by this time I'm getting lost now. Devil's advocate. So they were saying, why is it like that? But why is it like that? But why is it like that? And I eventually came to a realization that this is not a good exercise. Because they believe, but they're just making themselves out not to believe, just to... It's become a futile argument now. So I told this kid, I said, you need to have your friend here. But then he said, my friend is in my head. Maybe in my head. And I thought, okay, forget it, then I can't. Because I think... He, you know what he came up with at the end? Why are we better than animals? Why do we humans think they're superior to animals? Do you know where that idea comes from? Huh? No, no, it's not evolution. There's some other thing. I forget what it's called. That why are we better than animals? I was like, subhanAllah, did the animals go to the moon? Do animals rule others? Like if you've come down... No, seriously. I mean, that's just a, that, that's a random answer. At the end of the day, if you have come down to the thought of seeing yourself equal to animals, then you're lost in some philosophy. That is a really messed up philosophy and I need a lot more time with you. Right, that's when I lost my patience with that one. Yes. Right, a good consequence, a bad consequence, yes. So yeah, there are other theories of how they've justified that. Right? That's why I'm saying all of these arguments aren't 100% bulletproof arguments. So, the, uh, the, the, yeah, they have other theories about that as well, which is good you, you brought that up. Okay, any more from the sisters? Right. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. Okay, so uh, if God is just and so on and so forth, right, which we know he is, but why do Muslims, I mean, essentially that question also assumes that why Muslims have an advantage by being born in Muslim households, Muslim communities. It's just easier to carry on, right, with, with your parents' faith. Whereas for Christian, it's much more difficult because they have to con- come over. The simple answer to that is that um, in a general sense, in a neutral sense, knowledge is there. So if they want, they can find the truth if somebody's seeking the truth. And unless they're ap- apathetic or, um, uh, what's the other words I keep, not atheist or whatever, they just don't want to, they've actively decided not to. Right? They could have checked, they could have found out, they could have investigated. However, if somebody has had no exposure, so we've got now two scenarios, right? If they've had no exposure to religion, about God, Islam, nothing. Really primitive. When you say no exposure, it means they don't even have access to the internet, even if they want it. Then, according to our theological uh, um, groups, we have two opinions. One opinion is that, وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا We're not going to punish until we send a prophet. So these people are going to be left to Allah. We're not going to say they're doomed to hell. Allah will deal with them in whatever way. He may send them all to paradise. He may test them according to whatever that test is, whether they'll you know, jump into hellfire and that will become actually paradise or whatever the test is on that day. We leave that to Allah. But we're not going to say they're all definitely doomed. The second opinion is that they are just responsible for believing in one creator. Not in anything else. If they believe in one creator, then they will succeed. This is Imam Abu Hanifa's opinion. It's called wujubul ma'rifah. Obligation of awareness of God. Why? If you don't send the Prophet, why should they be aware of God? He said because the concept of God is so built into the design of the universe and oneself that it's very difficult to deny. And studies show that. Because if you look at primitive Amazonian or Aboriginal communities, they believed in a supreme being. They could have called him whatever they wanted. But they believed in one supreme being because you see that in this world, if you've got two bosses, you have a problem. So when you observe the world close enough, you're going to have to come to this conclusion that there's one creator. As long as they've done that, that's enough. They don't have to pray, they may have committed zina, it doesn't make it, that doesn't make a difference. Those are the two views. However, there's a third view about people who've just had um, bad information about the faith. Repugnant idea about Islam, that it's evil and it's backwards and this and like it is today for some people. So while the majority would say that that's not an excuse, people can go and find the positive as people do. But Imam Ghazali in his Rasail, in his Faisal uh, al-Tafriqa, which has recently been in the last 10 years or 15 years or so, has really been published and really promoted because it helps the interfaith scene quite a bit, is that anybody who has had a bad impression of Islam, no exposure to good about Islam, then they may be forgiven. Sorry, they may be excused. Now that creates a bit of a moral dilemma for converts, I think. If you're a convert and your parents aren't Muslim yet, you want them to be Muslim. They hate Islam because they see it on the media. So should you give them the positivity about Islam? Should you tell them about the goodness of Islam? 
Because if you do, then that means they don't only have the evil, uh, sorry, not the evil, but they don't have just a bad impression of Islam. Basically, if they had just a bad impression of Islam, will they be more excused? And if you gave them good impression about Islam as well, then now you're putting them to the test, which means now they're not going to be excused. So would you do that? That's the dilemma that gets created. So they say, no, you must do da'wah. Right? We leave that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We, we follow the mainstream opinion, and we leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the best answer when you're in a kind of a, one of the, at work or somewhere, and they say, what do you Muslims believe about people of uh, disbelievers going to hellfire? Are they all going to go to hellfire? How do you answer that? You can say they go to hellfire. What are you going to do about that? Like, how do you answer that question in a way that works? It's God's choice. No, but what does your... Okay, all right. You can leave it at that, right? But they say, no, but what do you really believe? Yes. You don't think anybody will be wrong? Okay, alright. As, as long as they're satisfied with that, but they'll, pro, they'll prod. Yes. Okay, I don't give that answer either. I give an answer from the Quran. Anybody know the Quranic answer to this? Allah gives us the answer in the Quran, seriously. When I found it, I was like, wow, this is really wonderful. Fir'aun asked uh, Musa alayhi salam, فَمَا بَالْقُرُونِ Khalas, that's it. What is this? Because he had all of his ministers around him and he wants to hear it from Musa Islam that they're all doomed. What is the state of the people before us? From the ancestors, the forebears. Musa Islam wonderfully said, The knowledge of that is by my Lord in a book that he has, and my God does not falter, no make mistakes, no, you know, and so on. So, you can say, well, God knows best. We leave that, we leave that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's not, no, but I want to know. That's all I know, brother. No, but I want to know what you... I said, that's, that's what God says in the Quran. What's wrong with you? Allahu Akbar. Yes. Oh yes, the age of Aisha. I love that one. Um, I've, I've done it as part of other talks, but not specifically. But that's a simple one. You know that. Because the first question I'm going to ask anybody about that is, why are you so agitated about that age? Like, what, what's wrong with it? Where's it coming from? The reason why anybody's going to ask about that is because they're not used to this idea of girls marrying at a young age. Right? So generally, this is what I tell people. That number one, there's a few answers to this. Number one, nobody brought this up as a criticism until the 1910 or so. The first person to talk about this was uh, an Oxford professor called Margoliath, an Orientalist. He called it an ill-advised union or something like that. An ill-informed or ill-advised union. The first person to make it a criticism. In fact, Aisha radiallahu anha was actually, she was engaged to Abu Lahab's son, if I remember correctly. And when Abu Bakr became Muslim, he, they broke it off. It was completely fine to get married at that age. And for many, many years, of, many, many centuries afterwards, in fact. Especially when he had ru rural life. 
agrarian life. What did you do? All these young boys and girls, there was no university to go to, there was no mobile phones, there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube, there's nothing. What did you do? Hormones raging, you started producing children, you settled down. That's what you did in that age. Number two, this is what I tell people, and I think that, that generally gets the message across. I said, my daughter, I would not get her married at the age of nine. Forget nine, not even at 12. Forget 12, not even 15, maybe not even 17 or 18. But that's not because it's wrong. It's because I don't think she's mature enough, and I don't think many girls are mature enough today. Because our social... Um, I forget the uh, our social context here basically doesn't allow men, girls or boys to mature quick enough intellectually and maturely, uh, mentally so you've, you may have observed this that some children that come from other countries from Africa or from even Pakistan for example they're a lot more mature especially from poor families because they've had to do this we've molly coddled them we've just about weaned them off their f- Addiction to their Xbox at the age of 17 and come on go and get a life Right Well the age difference it was nobody criticized that so you are basically imposing your cultural bias of this particular time and age on another community where this this happened before people married at that age and the thing is that if you can find historically a criticism then maybe that's justified. But there is no historical... There is a criticism though about it. You know what, they, you know what the criticism was? You know in Bukhari, etc. There's the hadith which says that the Prophet ﷺ saw Aisha in his dream. Jibreel ﷺ brought in a picture, in a silk picture or something like that. So they said that he was fantasizing about her, na'udhu billah. That was the criticism. No criticism that he got married to her. So essentially there, there's a term for it which... I have here. Um, the term for it is that it's an anthropological term, which is when you're basically imposing your cultural bias on a totally different generation without understanding their sensitivities. And that's completely absurd. You can't do that. Um, no, no, it's not that complicated. Um, let me find out. I'll take another question in the meantime, but let me find out. Yes. No, because we're saying we don't do that anymore. I said I would never get my daughter married to that because the maturity level isn't there. But in those days, the maturity level, Mufti Shabir Saab, he was brought up in Malawi. And I've been to Malawi recently, and it's not as developed as South Africa, for example. In his time, they had no lights. He said after Maghrib prayer, we used to just be waiting for Isha because we were dozing. We couldn't wait for Isha because we had to pray Isha. Once we prayed Isha, then we could go to sleep. There was nothing to do. So what else did you do? People got married. They started producing children. That's what they did. Nowadays, nobody wants to get married because they're just distracted by everything else. Um, Cultural relativism or something like that it's called. There's a cultural in there somewhere. Anyway, I think we should... Yes. Will what, sorry? You know what? This is the problem with science today, right? This is a whole different thing. Science, why there are Muslim scientists, some of the best Muslim scientists of Egypt, 
Pakistan, uh, if I don't mention your country, it's not because I'm missing it on purpose. These are just e Egypt, who I've seen. Egypt, huge ones. Palestine, they're sitting in America, in Switzerland, in the UK, and, in, uh, and the Algerian, they're all sitting in France. Right? Why? Because their countries don't value them. They don't give them the funding. They don't care. Islam at this point in time is on the defensive. You can't have budgets to basically do a lot of this research. The budgets are in the West. Otherwise, there are so many avenues to do so much if you can have the budget. The only, you know, people don't even get it. Ulama, the only place that was providing them research budget was CMC when they had it. They just don't have this concept of paying somebody to do research. Because we, the, we don't have the money. We're using our money just for defense and building our own structures. And the Muslim countries, unfortunately a lot of them dictatorships or whatever the case is, they just don't. So all of their brains are elsewhere. So Islam will definitely contribute science as it did in the past. But remember, for science to contribute to something, you need a whole structure, a system in place. And the Muslim countries don't have that structure in place. That's what I think. Wallahu alam. But anyway, that term is, you can check it up, relative cultural construism. Right? Or relative culturalism, you can say. You're relatively imposing your cultural norms on another culture, which is it's unfair, to say the least. Okay, Jazakallah khairan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. And uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept and to forgive our mistakes. But um, as I said, don't be too. Um, uh, uh, as I said, there's no. The main thing is that make a lot of dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Con constantly, if you do have a question, there's a lot of answers out there, even online. In fact, a lot of theological question and answers are. Uh, Christians have so many answers. Because they've been dealing with this for a very long time. And you can borrow from them as long as you don't get it, you know, you don't get it wrong. You can borrow from that. And uh, inshallah, in the future. We will just hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes this easy for us. But we need to take a stand. Uh, you know, we've got these courses running at White Thread Institute. And the only reason people can't is because they're already teaching. I think every maktab needs to probably dedicate a few of their ulama and alimas, right, to go and take these studies. Because how are they going to teach that generation? And I would suggest that if you can take the hit of your, how much a week do you get for maktab? 60 pounds? Okay, 100 pounds. If you can take that hit, right, maybe we need a scholarship for this. You know, for maktab students, where's that Muslim aid brother here? Right? Uh, there was a brother here who talked to me about this. We need to get maktab teachers who are already teaching to take off a year and take these courses. Because otherwise we don't have that. And you should really see, alhamdulillah, unless I mention this, they've got several ulama now ready to do these courses next year. That full theology course that Dr. Savarub Ustaz Imran, that teaching, it's really wonderful, right? You will really understand the lingo, you can then talk with the right terms, you'll understand where the people are coming from, and these questions, because remember your congregation is going to get, there's more, I go to universities, give talks, there are more and more Muslims. Before you would never see Gujaratis there, now you even see Gujaratis there. Right? So there's only more and more people going to university. These guys study this stuff, they're going to get confused. And if me and you cannot answer that, then we are backwards because that's what's happened in America already. Ulama are nothing unless they've got a PhD. Right? And that's going to happen here if we don't become abreast of this. So 
dedicate, you know, take a sabbatical from your maktab teaching seriously and come back and you know, with a, inshallah, become formidable and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for tawfiq and maybe we can focus on some kind of scholarship even for that. You take off maktab for a whole year, you get paid for that and you get paid to do studies. Alhamdulillah, that would be great. Jazakallah khair, keep us in your du'as, barakallahu feekum. I'd like to say thanks to Mufti Jawed Sahib who really organized this in a really wonderful way. It was very easy, mashallah, and the masjid of course. And uh, all of you for attending. And jazakallah khairan.